Today, we will consider five nominations that are critical to United States foreign policy. Ambassador Lynn Tracy, nominated to be the ambassador to Russia, is on the first panel. The second panel will be Ambassador Julie Fisher to be the ambassador to Cyprus. Ms. Christina Kavin to be the ambassador to Armenia. Ms. Carol Spahn to be the director of the Peace Corps. And Ms. Cynthia Dyer to be the director of the office to monitor and combat trafficking. Uh, before we proceed, I understand that Senator Portman is going to be introducing Ambassador Tracy. Senator Portman, you're recognized. Great. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. It's my honor to be here to uh, introduce uh, a fellow Ohioan, Ambassador Lynn Tracy, to be the nominee for Russia. Um, she was born and raised in Barberton, Ohio, to Albert and Carol Sue Tracy, both Ohio natives. Her sister from Barberton is behind us. She graduated from Barberton High School, where she played volleyball, was a great student. Then she branched out and decided to go south to University of Georgia, where she majored in Soviet studies. After graduating, she put her studies to the test, uh, working as a contractor at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow for three years in the late 1980s. Of course, that was when it was still the Soviet Union. So it was a challenging time. Uh, but not even the joyful winters of USSR could keep her away from home. Ohio called her, and she returned to attend law school at the University of Akron. Shortly thereafter, Ambassador Tracy answered her nation's call, and she joined the Foreign Service. Her career since has been impressive and prepares her well, I believe, for the role she is seeking. She has been all across post-Soviet space, including some very difficult postings. She's worked her diplomatic missions in Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tur Turkmenistan, and Embassy in Moscow, where she served as the DCM, Deputy Chief of Mission, from 2014 to 2017. She's also served several assignments here in Washington, D.C., including in the European and Eurasian Affairs Bureau at the State Department and on the National Security Council. Her career has taken her to Pakistan twice and even to Afghanistan soon after 9-11, when the country was still a very active war zone. This position would be Ambassador Tracy's second ambassadorship, as she's currently U.S. Ambassador to Armenia, where she's been since 2019. Uh, I don't want to tell anybody on this panel that Armenia and the Caucasus have been an interesting place to be during that period of time. Very challenging, and uh, she served there with distinction. Her long Foreign Service career in the post-Soviet space, her current experience as Chief of Mission, even her college major in Soviet Studies, and of course her solid uh, Midwestern upbringing in Ohio, all of these things have prepared her well for this very difficult role. Needless to say, our relationship with Russia is strained and a challenging one to manage. We should not confirm anyone as U.S. Ambassador to Russia who is untested or unqualified. Ambassador Tracy is neither of those. She's tested, she's eminently qualified, and I'm pleased to introduce her today and look forward to hearing from her. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Portman, and uh, always good to have one of our distinguished colleagues on the committee uh, be introducing a, a nominee. Uh, let me congratulate all of the nominees. We thank you for your service to our country, your willingness to serve. We thank you uh, for, and your families as well. Uh, I know they will have to make sacrifices as you serve in your posts. This is especially true in Russia. Our diplomatic presence in Moscow, our dialogue with Putin's government have shrunk dramatically in the wake of his illegal and barbaric invasion of Ukraine. Putin's war against Ukrainian civilians is targeting their electricity and their water and abducting their children. It is unlike anything Europe has seen since the Second World War. And yet even as Putin continues to carry out this brutal war, we need an ambassador who can represent us there. You, uh, Ambassador, will not only have to carry out your duties in the face of a hostile government, but you will also represent America beyond uh, the Kremlin walls. 
to the broad mass of the Russian people, many of whom feel isolated and betrayed by their leader's war of aggression, to the detainees of this war, to the Russian opposition activists who are fighting for a different way forward in Russia, and to the Ukrainians who will look to you for assessments of our relationship with Moscow. It's difficult to imagine a more challenging assignment for a career diplomat, so I look forward to hearing from you how, to plan, uh, how you plan to tackle these and other issues um, uh, upon your uh, confirmation. With that, I'll turn to Ranking Member Risch for his remarks. Well, thank you very much, um, Mr. Chairman. Good morning, and welcome to uh, Ambassador uh, Tracy. Uh, ambassador Tracy's been nominated to be ambassador to Russia at the lowest point of relations between our two countries since the Cold War. Our soldiers aren't on the field facing each other, but our weapons do combat back and forth uh, every day. Uh, Putin continues his unjust, unprovoked, and inhumane war on Ukraine, which includes deliberate attacks on civilian critical infrastructure, as well as atrocities perpetrated against the civilian population. Uh, he continues to weaponize Russian energy supplies against U.S. allies and partners in Europe and uses the profits to fund the, uh, his war in Ukraine. Under Putin, Russia has re-emerged uh, as a strategic challenger to the United States and the entire transatlantic community. The withdrawal of Russia from bilateral arms control measures further highlights the dangerous game of brinksmanship they always play. Russia continues to be a very dangerous place for Americans. There are a number of Americans held in Russians today, two of whom have been designated as wrongfully detained under the uh, Levinson Act. It's clear these people are targeted uh, to be used as political bargaining chips. The Kremlin uh, has long been suspected of using its personnel in the U.S. who are assigned to Russian consulates, the Russian embassy, and the Russian mission to the U.N. to conduct espionage and malign influ influence activities against the United States. Meanwhile, over the past eight years, the U.S. has been forced to close three, con three of its consulates in Russia, while Russia continues to operate its consulates in Houston and New York. Uh, in addition, our State Department continues to grant more diplomatic visas to Russia than Russia grants to the United States. We must build on recent, though tenuous, progress in countering these efforts, which began during the Trump administration and not given in to, uh, uh, and not given in to Russian uh, uh, pressure tactics. Short staffing at Embassy uh, Moscow has seriously hindered facilities management and the day-to-day -day conduct of American diplomacy. And I commend our diplomats in Moscow for continuing to keep our embassy operational in spite of these challenges. While I wish to see these restrictions eased, I also expect the department to prioritize visa reciprocity in any conversations about increasing our footprint, uh, about increasing our footprint in country. We cannot allow the Kremlin to hold our diplomatic facilities and personnel hostage in an attempt to secure policy concessions or an increased diplomatic or intelligence presence in the U.S. From managing the lines of diplomatic effort and dialogue to pursuing consular access for Americans held in Russia to simply keeping the building and team running, Ambassador Tracy will face many challenges if confirmed. Ambassador Tracy, I thank you for your years of service and for stepping up to this, what's going to be a very difficult task, undoubtedly. I look forward to hearing your plans to confront these issues. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Risch. So we'll turn to Ambassador Tracy. Uh, your full statement will be included in the record. We'd ask you to summarize it in about five minutes or so so that the members of the committee can have a conversation with you and uh, you're recognized. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, 
Thank you, Senator Portman, for the very kind introduction. I also want to thank you for your service to the state of Ohio, the Senate, and to this committee. Your leadership and commitment to public service is inspirational, particularly with the national challenges, national security challenges facing our country. I am honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the next ambassador of the United States to the Russian Federation. And I'm grateful to President uh, Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have placed in me during a period of unprecedented tension in U.S.-Russia relations brought about by Russia's war on Ukraine. For 28 years, I've had the good fortune to represent the United States as a Foreign Service officer. Many of those assignments have been in countries, in the countries of the former Soviet Union. It has been a privilege to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Armenia and prior to that as Deputy Chief of Mission in Moscow. My experience as a contractor in the late 1980s at the Embassy in Moscow as part of an American-only staff is an, an experience that has again become relevant to some of the challenges we are facing today. Throughout my career, I have worked hard to protect our nation and its interests. For me, this has always been about more than the effort of one individual. It has required teamwork that goes beyond a single department or just one branch of our government. If confirmed, I pledge to continue that team approach and to work closely with the members and staff of this committee on our Russia policy. Mr. Chairman, this committee and other members of Congress have my commitment that if confirmed, the plight of U.S. citizens detained in Russia will be a top priority for me. U.S. citizens living and traveling in Russia have faced unprecedented harassment, and some have been determined by the Secretary of State to be wrongfully detained. With the support of the consular team in Moscow, I will devote my attention and energy to supporting the welfare and well-being of every U.S. citizen detained in Russia. I will work closely with Washington as the administration continues to engage Russian authorities to bring Paul Whelan and Brittany Greiner home. I will also pursue the humanitarian release of Mark Fogel. I will press the Russian government to live up to its obligations, including as they relate to providing timely and consistent consular access and to the fair treatment of our citizens who are detained. As the members of this committee know all too well, Russia's unjustified and unprovoked war against Ukraine has shattered European security and undermined global economic stability. Russia's war has resulted in catastrophic loss of life, and in recent days, as it struggles on the battlefield, the Putin regime has escalated, escalated its attacks with a bombing campaign against civilian infrastructure intended to cause suffering and death for ordinary Ukrainians. Together with our allies and partners, the United States remains committed to supporting Ukraine's sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity, and to helping Ukraine defend itself. We are also imposing unprecedented economic costs on Russia and welcome the continued close coordination with Congress on sanctions and other tools. As the world's two preeminent nuclear powers, the United States and Russia have special responsibilities. These include refraining from reckless saber-rattling, maintaining lines of communication to reduce nuclear risks, and living up to the commitments under the New START Treaty and other arms control obligations. President Biden has said the administration is ready to negotiate a new arms control framework to replace New START when it expires in 2026, but we need Russia to allow for inspections to resume under the treaty before we can have a dialogue on what comes next. The Russian government is intensifying repression against civil society, independent media, human rights activists, pro-democracy activists, advocates, 
and even Russian citizens who simply have the courage to use the word war. If confirmed, I will work to keep a spotlight on, of support on those like Vladimir Karamurza, Alexei Navalny, and Radio Free Europe reporter Vladislav Yesipenko, who have been jailed or harassed simply for seeking to exercise their fundamental freedoms. I believe that promoting mutual understanding among Americans and Russians can contribute to long-term stability in our bilateral relations. Even in the darkest days of the Soviet Union, citizens of goodwill in both our countries formed people-to-people -people ties. I will cultivate those connections, particularly through our public diplomacy programs, in order to keep the door open to a better future. If confirmed, I will reach out to the Russian people at all levels of society as one of my priorities. These topics and others require hard conversations, and if confirmed, I will make it a priority to conduct frank diplomacy, supporting the President's efforts to maintain a clear channel of communication and to hold Russia accountable. We have a team of smart, experienced, and dedicated public servants at our embassy in Moscow who are performing brilliantly in an extremely challenging environment. Their safety, security, and ability to do their jobs is of paramount concern. If confirmed, it will be one of the greatest honors and privileges of my career to lead them, and I pledge to do so with integrity and humility. Finally, I am pleased to be joined today by my sister, Anita Jepsky. I have been blessed to receive the indispensable support of my family, my parents, Albert and Carol Sue Tracy, Anita, and my sister, Mary Lou Tracy, have always believed in me and been there for me. I am grateful to Ambassador John Sullivan and my mentor, Ambassador John Teft, for their wise counsel and strong example of public service. I also want to acknowledge my history professor at the University of Georgia, Dr. Ronald Rader, and his wife, Jana Rader, who guided my first steps as a student pursuing a deeper understanding of Russia and the Soviet Union. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, thank you for the privilege of appearing before the committee today and considering my nomination. I look forward to your questions. All right, well, thank you. Before we start our five-minute rounds, there are questions that we ask all nominees, uh, and I just simply need a yes or no from you. Uh, it speaks to the importance this committee places on responsiveness by officials in the executive branch, and that we expect and will be seeking from you. So do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Do you commit to keep the committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. And do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. All right. So our nominee has answered yes to all those questions, so we'll start a round of five minutes. I'll recognize myself. It's obvious the importance of this uh, nomination because while we have a whole series of nominees that will be testifying at a second panel, we've had you exclusively before this panel, which uh, before the committee. <clears throat> so it speaks volumes about the importance that we think uh, this particular uh, position uh, entails. And so. Um, I, I want to ask you, uh, I know that you uh, have been our ambassador to Armenia. I know that you at one time were the deputy chief of mission uh, in Russia. But this is a very high profile and I would say tough job. Are you up to it? 
Mr. Chairman, thank you for the question. Uh, I believe that I am. Uh, over the course of my 28 years in the Foreign Service, uh, I have been tested in a number of assignments, uh, uh, both in terms of some of the challenges of physical security uh, during uh, a tour in Peshawar, Pakistan. Uh, my tour as Deputy Chief of Mission in uh, uh, Russia at the Embassy in Moscow was uh, already in a period after Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea when our relations were uh, hurtling downward and we faced uh, regular uh, harassment of our staff. Uh, we, I personally experienced some of that uh, where we were in the glare of, of uh, ambushes from um, so-called journalists. Uh, so uh, I have, have seen uh, in Russia already some of what I uh, expect uh, will be a continuation of some of the same practices. And then let me say, uh, finally, uh, it has been a tremendous honor to be uh, the U.S. Ambassador to Armenia uh, in a period of uh, enormous opportunity but of tremendous challenge, as I know you understand very well as, as someone who has followed the caucuses very closely. Um, during my tenure, we were in a period of active conflict, a war, uh, that brought um, tremendous pressures on our embassy, on our staff, uh, and uh, that is uh, another experience uh, that I um, believe I will bring to bear um, in uh, serving, if confirmed, as the uh, U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, you referred to some of the difficulties of uh, this particular uh, assignment. Uh, the Russian government has sought to make it difficult for the United States to operate diplomatic facilities in Russia. They forcibly terminated local employed staff, declared diplomats to be persona non grata. Uh, so we want to, first of all, take this opportunity to thank the personnel who have worked at our embassy uh, in Russia uh, over the years, uh, both Americans and local staff, and particularly those currently serving during an incredibly trying and challenging time. Uh, how can the embassy's work be effective, both in terms of providing service on behalf of Americans and in representing and advancing U.S. interests at a time that our diplomatic relations are barely existent? Mr. Chairman, as, as uh, you well know and the committee uh, knows, we are operating uh, at a greatly reduced staffing. And yet, everything that I have seen uh, in, in my preparation uh, for this hearing and for understanding our operations uh, in Moscow speaks to uh, the, the dedication, the capabilities of our uh, excellent team in Moscow, of, American, um, of Americans uh, in able able to carry out duties under extremely difficult circumstances. Uh, it isn't easy, uh, particularly in uh, the kind of surveillance environment that we have in Russia. I mean, this was something that I saw when I was, was the deputy chief of mission. Uh, it's almost impossible to go anywhere without some kind of surveillance, including when uh, we were meeting journalists, uh, um, political activists, uh, academics. 
and it has gotten a lot harder even since then. Uh, people are afraid. But what has struck me as I've looked at, at some of the work that the embassy is doing is that Russians are still reaching out to us, interested in maintaining contact. Uh, we have uh, still some very strong public diplomacy programs that are active, uh, exchange programs that are allowing us to keep the door open to, to Russian citizens who are interested in a better kind of relationship in future. Mm -hmm. um, but it is difficult, and we have to be careful because uh, of the, the risks that people are taking when they uh, are in touch with our embassy in these times. Two final sets of questions, and so let me try to synthesize them. I remain deeply concerned about Americans detained in Russia, including Paul Whelan, Brittany Greiner, Mark Fogel, and James Wilgus, a New Jersey constituent. Do you commit to requesting regular consular access for all Americans detained in Russia to ensure that their basic needs are being met? Absolutely. Will you personally commit to visit wrongfully detained Americans Paul Whelan and Brittany Greiner and support uh, Spiha in working to secure their release? Yes, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Russia continues to jail opposition leaders, including Vladimir Karamusa, Alexei Navalny, um, Ilya Yashin, who are, in my belief, are true patriots of Russia who advocate for a better future for the Russian people. In September, Ranking Member Rish and I wrote the administration requesting a determination under the Global Magnitsky Human Rights and Accountability Act as to whether the treatment of Mr. Karamuza is sanctionable under the act, and if so, if the administration plan plans to impose sanctions. So, assuming you are confirmed, do I have your commitment that you will work with the administration to respond to our letter with a determination no later than January 20th of next year, which is the date required by law? Yes, Mr. Chairman. Uh, okay. Uh, I have other questions in this regard, but I'll submit them for the record uh, in deference to my colleagues. Uh, Senator Risch went to vote, and uh, so I will recognize Senator Romney at this time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I appreciate very much your willingness to serve in a hostile place, uh, an often cold place. Um, Moscow is not particularly beautiful, depending upon the corner of the city you happen to be in. And of course, there are no McDonald's there anymore, so it's a, a, a challenging spot. The last piece, obviously, a bit of humor. The other, quite serious, and, and very much appreciate your service, uh, that, that of the people who serve uh, with you. I want to ask a question just about Armenia, uh, which is, what is the perception of the people in Armenia with regards to Russia, with regards to Putin, with regards to the Ukrainian invasion? Uh, how do they see that? And do you believe that's shared by other of the, the Soviet state, former Soviet states, um, uh, but, but particularly with regards to, to Armenia? What is the perspective there? Senator, thank you. You, you've asked a, an extremely uh, uh, timely and relevant question. Um, what I've been uh, seeing and hearing uh, since uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 24th is a sense of real concern among other former Soviet uh, countries uh, about the future of their uh, independence and sovereignty, sovereignty and territorial integrity. Uh, they, I think, are each looking and wondering who's next. Um, uh, unfortunately, there are, um, are also uh, a number of dependencies uh, among former Soviet states on Russia. I think the um, United States and Armenia, and with the support of Congress, um, uh, has 
thankfully been able to, to work on reducing some of those dependencies um, uh, and to, to be looking in a more westward direction. Uh, in 2018, the Armenian people held their freest and fairest elections uh, since independence and underwent then in 2020 one of the greatest stress tests that a democracy can endure, which was a war. And in the following summer held, again, uh, free and fair elections. And what Armenians have told me is because they don't want to go back. They don't want to go back to corrupt leaders. Uh, and uh, they want to find a, a better future. Coming back to Russia, I think the problem, and this is what Armenians are saying, they see that uh, some of their, their previous relationships or, or standing relationships that they've had with Russia are not meeting the needs of Armenia today. Uh, so I think where we're at right now between the United States and Armenia is having some very important conversations about, about how we can be uh, helpful to Armenia um, as it continues, I think, seeking uh, a more democratic future and a secure future. I will say that there are many security challenges there as well uh, that uh, Russia is playing a role in uh, that we have to keep um, pay attention to. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, news reports suggest that many, many people left uh, Russia uh, escaping the, the uh, potential uh, to be drafted into their military service or perhaps just escaping a brutal regime. Uh, are, is there accuracy to that report? Have there been a lot of people leaving Russia? And can we uh, facilitate, uh, particularly those with, with uh, skills and expertise that would be helpful here? Uh, can, can, can you and can our effort uh, continue to facilitate the uh, uh, immigration of people who wish to come to this country uh, to make that easier and, and, uh, and, a, and a source of strength for us? Senator, um, I, I can confirm, uh, based on, on regular conversations that I've had with uh, um, Armenian government officials, that they have uh, received a, a steady stream of Russian citizens since February 24th. Uh, there was a big wave uh, in the spring and then after the mobilization more. Uh, uh, not all have stayed in Armenia. Um, some have moved on to places like uh, Georgia, Turkey, uh, Western Europe, uh, but um, approximately 40,000 have, have remained in Armenia. These are young, um, many of them are young IT professionals, uh, and uh, we are certainly um, available and open at the, em at the embassy. We have uh, a lot of contacts. I think we've devoted attention to understanding who's in this community so that we can can look at the kinds of questions that you're raising uh, for the future. And this is something I would certainly be happy to stay in touch with you about. Thank you. Mr. Chairman. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations, Ms. Tracy, on your nomination. Um, you expressed your concern about Vladimir Karamurza um, in your opening testimony and Senator Menendez talked about the Americans who are unjustly detained as well in Russia. What can you do as ambassador to, to help keep attention on those unjust detentions and what, we can, what can we do to try and continue to urge Russia to release people who are being held? Senator Sheen, thank you. Uh, I think one of uh, there are there are public and private aspects to what we can be doing, and I think publicly, um, uh, the kinds of 
of efforts that we're seeing from members of this committee, other members of Congress, uh, to keep a spotlight on uh, um, political prisoners, uh, political activists who've been unjustly jailed, uh, as well as our detained American citizens, that, that the public spotlight is so important uh, so that they uh, do not feel uh, forgotten, because I think that can happen in isolation. Um, uh, you know, one of um, the most inspiring and early experiences that I had with this kind of a situation was, was actually when I was in um, working at the embassy in Moscow in the late 1980s. Secretary Schultz uh, visited and championed the refuseniks, the divided families. He made a point of, of meeting with them. I had the good fortune to backbench on one of those meetings and seeing the, 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 the comfort, the hope that families took from that, uh, even as they remained divided or were being refused uh, exit privileges, uh, was uh, for me just uh, such a clear point of understanding on the importance of this public spotlight. Privately, uh, I commit to this committee that this will be a part of my ongoing uh, conversation with uh, Russian officials uh, that there will, this will um, never go unsaid, the importance of the release uh, of the wrongfully detained, of the need for appropriate consular access for our American citizens, and for the release of the political opposition who, as I said, have been unjustly detained. Thank you. This week, um, Russia walked away from continued negotiations around New START, and um, given Vladimir Putin's rhetoric, um, that heightens the nuclear threat because of the war in Ukraine. Can, can you talk about how we should think about future efforts to reduce um, weapons with Russia? Senator, uh, I think first of all, in, in, in looking at New START, uh, the, the focus of the administration has been on uh, resuming um, inspections uh, under the treaty. Uh, it's not a gift to Russia. It's a right that we have uh, um, uh, for treaty implementation. And, and uh, those inspections are very important. Obviously, Russia receives uh, some of those same, um, same rights. But I think this can be one uh, avenue uh, of... of um, at least verification. It's hard to talk about trust in the in the current climate, uh, but I think having some uh, ability to to agree on on the inspections for the verification is one measure that we can continue to pursue. And I believe the administration, which um, was ready to meet to talk about resuming uh, inspections, uh, is is still prepared to do. We see that the the treaty as an instrument of stability. I think the other um, uh, uh, approach here that is so very important is that um, we have very clear communications with uh, the highest levels of the Russian government to uh, uh, enforce what um, reinforce what President Biden has already said, which is that. Uh, the use of nuclear weapons would bring severe consequences and extremely irresponsible. And I think that having that clear channel of communication uh, so that there are no misunderstandings, no misperceptions is, is what is absolutely needed right now. 
you have a very difficult challenge had any ambassador to Russia would at this time because on the one hand, um, it's important for future relationships to maintain that open channel of communication with Russia. On the other hand, we need to condemn their outrageous behavior in the war in Ukraine, the obvious war crimes that are being committed, the disinformation, um, the hostile activities that they're engaging in in the United States and Europe and other parts of the world. So help me understand how you walk that fine line and, and how do you raise those concerns while at the same time trying to keep an open channel of communication? Senator, I faced uh, some of these uh, uh, same difficulties when I was the deputy chief of mission in Moscow, and I found uh, it very important uh, to, to be professional uh, and uh, to be prepared uh, uh, in, in, the, in these conversations uh, with Russian officials, uh, but to also be frank and candid. Uh, and I think there's a way to do that um, that, as I said, um, it can be effective uh, in ensuring that there are not misperceptions. But it isn't easy uh, having uh, had that seat, uh, um, uh, as, as I said, as the deputy. You know, publicly, uh, uh, I think we have a lot of, of tools uh, through our, our, our public diplomacy platform, our social media tools to publicly be messaging about um, uh, all the concerns that we have uh, uh, and to, to shine a light, to expose um, uh, the, uh, the untold suffering that Russia has inflicted on Ukraine. Uh, I think that that is absolutely necessary so that there is no question about it. Uh, but. Um, this is a tough environment. Uh, it's tough to sometimes penetrate through the propaganda uh, when people have been drinking Kool-Aid for a long time. You know, it's hard to get them to take water. Um, but I think we have to keep trying there. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And again, uh, Ambassador Tracy, thank you for stepping up. Um, you just talked about the untold suffering that's occurring in Ukraine, and I appreciate uh, your views on that. Um, how do you feel about sanctions? Uh, sanctions on Russia based on the February 24th invasion and the ongoing war on Ukraine. Since then, we had some data yesterday, uh, a projected 7.1% decrease in the GDP in Russia in this quarter, the fourth quarter, about 4% last quarter. Um, in Ukraine, it's about 40, 50%. Um, I, I believe our sanctions are not having the impact that we had intended. Can you talk about the sanctions on Russia and what we should do, perhaps, to make them more effective, if you believe that's the right course? Senator, uh, I uh, absolutely agree that the right course is uh, to stay the course on sanctions, to continue tightening uh, the sanctions. Uh, one area that I know you are very familiar with and that we, we've talked about is reducing Russia's energy uh, revenues. Um, uh, one mechanism that, that um, is um, projected to, to come into place is, is the oil price cap. Um, uh, I think that uh, is already showing some signs. Uh, um, if, if, if realized uh, that 
Uh, it could be very effective at reducing um, uh, some of Russia's revenue, but at the same time maintaining some some stability uh, in um, the the oil market. Uh, I think we need to continue um, uh, uh, looking at um, uh, who the actors are uh, in the Russian government and and in their their wider networks uh, who are a part of the um, uh, pernicious uh, and malign influence that Russia is projecting. Uh, but I am very mindful, you know, that uh, as you pointed out and, and as I have seen, that Ukrainians, uh, particularly now with all of these attacks on the on the uh, civilian infrastructure, on the energy infrastructure, are suffering. Um, I think we want to have it these these sanctions feeling the impact uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, I think, based on what I've been seeing of reports, we are starting to see sand in the gears of the of the Russian economy. We're seeing Russia turning to actors like North Korea and Iran for their, their weapon supplies. Um, uh, we see that Russia has lost um, able-bodied um, uh, workers uh, through mobilization and through, through flight. Uh, um, and, and so I think the expectation is that we are going to continue to see the impacts of our sanctions. But I can't predict exactly when that point is. Um, uh, when let me, let me say this. I, I hope you will, um, should you be confirmed, I think you will be, once you're there, that you will dig into this issue and give us advice as to how those sanctions can be effectively tightened. And from our conversation, you know how I feel about the energy exports and how that really is what's uh, funding the war machine. Uh, let me ask you more, a broad question, a tougher one. How do you think you would be most effective in convincing Vladimir Putin, his top officials, perhaps some effective... Uh, communication with oligarchs, that the illegal, brutal, and totally unprovoked war is also a senseless war and one that is counterproductive for Russia. How would you get Russia to the bargaining table? I think by continuing to do what we're doing right now, which is uh, um, uh, exacting a cost on the battlefield, I think we've seen already that 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 um, that President Putin has had to pay attention to this issue. Uh, he recently felt the pressure to meet with uh, mothers of, of soldiers, uh, even though um, uh, some of the, the the meeting appeared staged uh, in terms of participants. The very fact that he felt the need to to do that, I think, showed some pressure. Um, uh, and so I think. Uh, continuing to show that that strength of support, that unity of purpose is so very important um, uh, because uh, my impression of President Putin and his mindset is that uh, he thinks that he is more patient than we are, uh, that he can wait us out, uh, that our unity of purpose and will will crumble before uh, his does, and I think that that um, that needs to be demonstrated to him that that is not an accurate calculation. You believe that he believes that his missile supply will last longer than our patients in the West. He may, although his missile supply appears to be running running low. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I hope that you will strongly support the aid package from Congress to continue our help for all the reasons you just stated that this is a crucial time in in Ukraine and to keep uh, pressure on Russia. It's important that we maintain our support. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And um, Madam Ambassador, it's great to see you. Congratulations on the
nomination, and my colleagues have covered a lot of territory, including your efforts, uh, your your future effort to help uh, gain the release of uh, unjustly detained Americans and political prisoners there. Uh, I'm interested in following up on some of the questions regarding your operational flexibility in Moscow as ambassador. Uh, I'm assuming you've had a chance to talk to our outgoing ambassador, Ambassador Sullivan, is that right? Uh, yes, Senator. And in terms of just your ability to move around uh, either Moscow or the country, how limited is that right now? Senator, uh, uh, there is uh, some limited ability uh, to move around outside of Moscow, but it requires a lot of, of effort and planning. And because of uh, the size of the embassy now and, and some of the needs that go with uh, ambassadorial travel, um, it can be uh, a, a very, um, it, it can shift uh, a lot of the resources away from the embassy. Obviously, there are some very important priorities, though, that require that travel, uh, including visiting uh, uh, American citizens who are detained. Uh, Ambassador Sullivan described to me an, um, an ability to, to move around um, Moscow uh, but I think, as you can imagine, the climate there um, and because of the position the United States has taken with respect to Ukraine, uh, we're not always warmly welcomed All right. everywhere. All right. So and that, that leads to my next question. But first of all, do you need prior approval uh, from the Russian authorities to go outside of Moscow? Uh, Senator, I, um, um, I believe that there are some, some exempted officials from, from prior notification, but I would have to come back to, to confirm to you. Uh, I believe that uh, the ambassador and a few other um, staff, there's a limited group that has that exception. Most require notification uh, and approval to, to be able to travel outside of Moscow. Yeah, if, if you could get back to me, I'm, I'm curious about whether and to what extent we're applying reciprocity here, um, whether the rules that apply to the Russian ambassador here and members of the Russian embassy are, are similar uh, to the ones they're applying uh, to the, our, our embassy and, and folks in Russia. How about in terms of just access uh, to government officials? Um, what did Ambassador Sullivan tell you? Was he frozen out? Did he have an opportunity to meet with any folks of authority? Um, or were those conversations, to the extent they happened, going on between, you know, for example, others in the Russian government and, and folks here in, in Washington, either at the NSC or the State Department or Defense Department? Uh, Senator, he described to me uh, uh, some channels, but, but fairly limited, uh, limited channels. Uh, and also my impression was some of the same um, uh, people that he was speaking with were speaking with uh, um, officials here in Washington. Right. That, that's been my impression, which is that, you know, they've sort of frozen out to the extent that they, they can, and they can do a pretty good job of freezing out folks in, in Moscow. So I hope you'll, at least with respect to non-Russian government officials, push, push the boundaries of talking to other folks, as you say, in civil society and, and elsewhere. Um, and I would be interested in the extent to which uh, we're, we're applying reciprocity to their diplomats here. Um, let me just uh, get to this issue of the price cap, um, which as you know is scheduled to take effect, I think December 5th. Uh, and uh, I think it's a very important move by the G7, the United States, our allies, 
Uh, obviously, lots of questions about how it will work, and I think some of us believe that ultimately this price cap needs to be backed up um, with, with the threat of sanctions uh, to those who don't comply with what the EU is doing. Uh, but what role, if any, will you have, or what do you know about our efforts right now uh, to get other countries like India uh, and those who have not been part of setting the price cap, getting those countries to comply? Senator, um, my, my understanding is that we are having um, uh, conversations across the globe. I mean, I certainly participated in some of these uh, in Armenia about, about sanctions compliance. Uh, I, I think that we continue to encourage um, some of the, the major purchasers uh, of, of uh, Russian energy uh, to, uh, to join us, uh, but that's uh, uh, as much as I know at this point of the, those conversations. I appreciate that. Obviously, in order for this to be effective, we need to sort of shut all the, the loopholes and not just uh, keep the back of the barn open. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador, thank you so much uh, for uh, being willing to continue to serve uh, this country in a incredibly uh, difficult circumstances. I want to follow up uh, on uh, something that Senator Shaheen was asking about and also Senator Portman. I want you to describe the information environment as you understand it in, in Russia. The, I guess the most basic question is, do you think the Russian people know that they are losing? Senator, uh, thank you. My, my impression is that uh, there are certainly Russians who have sought out access to um, outside sources of information uh, to be able to to uh, more accurately uh, gauge what is happening in, in terms of Russia's war on Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, when you look at the polling that takes place inside of Russia, and I think some of it's pretty, pretty good and pretty credible, uh, uh, there are still many Russians who, uh, because of the years of propaganda, um, uh, are are still persuaded that that uh, this is a just cause, uh, uh, although the you know the rationales keep changing. And, and whatever mistakes may that may have been made are tactical or a general's fault or about you know equipping and training and not a sort of major strategic error. So I want to talk to you about the sort of the way I see it as two vectors, right? One is years of propaganda and culture and media channels that are organized around Putin. Um, and the other is increasingly um, that they want to control uh, the inputs, right? They actually do want to restrict access to truthful information. Um, Freedom House already um, uh, described Russia as not free in terms of information, but also noted that there was the biggest decline in 2022 in terms of the, the, the ability to access truthful information. I'm just sort of wondering, how you think those two um, factors are interacting right now? Because I, I don't want to get overly fixated on making sure people have access to truthful information if in the end the problem is the propaganda that overwhelms anyway. China has the ability to actually control all information and have the great firewall. Russia doesn't have that capability. They would like to, but I'm not sure they need it. And I'm wondering how you see those and also how you see the, the Department of State being useful in this conversation to make sure that the Russian people know that this is going badly. 
Senator, uh, thank you. I think one of the the, the ways in which um, uh, we we are helping um, uh, both in terms of of um, keeping alive some of the the, the credible. Um, independent voices of media is through some support that the State Department has been providing. And I think that is very important because um, uh, these are journalists who, who understand the challenges in the Russian media space and the mindset. Um, and, and I think uh, having uh, that kind of support to, to homegrown journalists, I've seen this elsewhere in my career, you know, people can smell cooked up storylines but when you have people who understand the mindset who are who are local um, uh, they're probably best placed to provide that kind of of, of um, uh, entry point into getting at sometimes these um, narratives of misinformation and disinformation so so that's one I think that's one way that that um, we need to continue uh, to be very active and engaged is to to be supporting media, um, uh, uh, Russian media um, who are who are in opposition and in exile uh, to be able to project. Um, but you know, it's again, it's a very tough environment. Um, but I don't think that we can afford to to walk away from from championing. Um, internet freedom, freedom um, of of making sure that people have access. Um, so I don't yeah. I don't know if that totally. No, I, I agree, and I think this is a this is a tough nut to crack. It just seems to me that um, we have to understand the information environment as it's as it's evolving pretty fast, because um, it was ever thus as it relates to the propaganda channels, but this new desire to control truthful information um, uh, presents additional complications. And I think the State Department is going to have some navigating to do. But before you start just jumping in and you know tweeting out things or whatever, we have to have a theory of the case about what exactly is going on here and why um, Russian public opinion uh, remains pretty stubborn even in the face of at least accessible facts. They may not have them in their brains, but they it's theoretically accessible via computer in a way that it's not, uh, for instance, in, in, in China. So thank you. Uh, Senator, I promise I won't just jump in and start tweeting. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> and you do it so well. Uh, let me, uh, uh, the second vote for members who have not voted uh, should know that it has started. Uh, uh, Senator Young is next, uh, but then after him is Senator Murphy. I've asked Senator Murphy to preside uh, until uh, the chair can return. Uh, thank you. Uh, welcome, Ms. Tracy. Good to have you here. Earlier this year, my Senate colleagues and I introduced legislation to sanction Chinese financial institutions that conduct transactions with any Russian financial institutions trying to avert sanctions uh, by using China's alternative to SWIFT. The end goal uh, of this legislation was to encourage Beijing to consider the costs of siding with Putin in his barbaric attack uh, on Ukraine. From your perspective, can you expand on how actions like this from the international com community have prompted Putin's allies and friends of convenience to rethink their relationships uh, with Moscow? Senator, thank you. Um, 
uh, I think that the kinds of conversations that um, that the administration and our partners and allies uh, uh, in 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 Europe and elsewhere have been having with um, uh, not just uh, government officials in in the PRC, but also the private company have uh, private sector have uh, have had an effect. I think there is a very clear understanding that. Um, uh, evading these sanctions, crossing these sanctions uh, um, uh, will bring consequences. That is, that is my understanding based on the conversations that, that have taken place thus far. But I, I think that we're going to have to remain vigilant. Uh, um, uh, and, and I think you're, you're, you know, if I'm taking that point from you, yeah. it is the importance of vigilance here. So in the spirit of vigilance, uh, have you seen, and, and maybe could you point to some changes that have occurred in, in the Russia-Chinese bilateral relationship, uh, positive or negative, uh, since we took this action? You know, one very telling um, uh, uh, episode to me uh, was uh, the um, what happened in Tashkent uh, um, earlier this year, this was in the fall, I believe um, uh, it was a gathering, President Xi was there, there were other leaders from the region there, and, um, and certainly uh, President Putin looked very uncomfortable. I mean, this, is, this has been well noted in the press, and he had to acknowledge um, that, you know, after that initial announcement back in, in during the Olympics of uh, the No Limits Partnership that uh, his, um, his Chinese colleague was expressing some concern and had questions. And the fact that he had to say that publicly uh, was a pretty big deal. Uh, we saw, and we saw some other um, uh, interactions at that particular conference that I think again showed that um, that some of Russia's partners were uh, were and are uneasy with the course that Russia's been taking. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, as as the months have lingered on since that point, um, Vladimir Putin has has found himself on his back foot, to put it charitably, and uh, he's been uh, increasingly desperate, it seems. And and Moscow has signaled from time to time that it's willing to respond asymmetrically to. The, the West in, in various ways. Where do you assess our interests are most vulnerable to these Russian acts of, of um, asymmetric retaliation? Senator, in terms of, of, of the, the uh, asymmetrical um, behavior, some of it, some of it is um, falling on our mission operations. Uh, something that was touched on earlier. Um, uh, uh, I think that we also um, uh, see Russia um, uh, projecting a very um, pernicious and malign influence in places uh, like, like Africa, um, where uh, we don't always have an easy answer um, uh, and in this case, I'm thinking of, of groups like the, the Wagner Company, um, uh, who are really, uh, as I said, a pernicious influence that is destabilizing 
good governance uh, efforts, um, the um, fueling corruption in, in some of its activities. So uh, this is, um, these are at least- Ray zone warfare, as it were, yes. right? Yeah. Um, and, and before I return, uh, yield to the, back to the chairman, um, <clears throat> just with respect to that discrete threat, do you have any thoughts uh, uh, about how we best safeguard ourselves and, and work with our allies to safeguard them against the, these actions? Senator, this is where I think uh, we we need um, uh, just to maintain some very tight coordination. We need to uh, be talking very, very frankly and candidly with our allies, and we need to do things in unison. I think this is certainly something I've seen across my career that when when we act uh, with partners and allies uh, on on some of these tough transnational issues or gray zone issues, that we're we're in a much better place. But I think it is. You know, um, there's a lot happening right now, and so that we don't lose sight of, of some of these places that maybe aren't on the European continent, but, but actually have a, a, a nexus uh, to, to what Russia's um, doing in, in Ukraine. Thank you, Ms. Tracy. Chairman? Uh, I'm recognizing myself under Senator Menendez's instructions and then going to <coughs> Senator Risch. Um, <coughs> good to see you. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, for stepping up at a time of peril to serve in maybe the most dip difficult diplomatic post uh, that we have. Um, we're grateful for your time with us here today. Um, I want to build on Senator Young's uh, questions um, and build on your uh, prior service in Armenia. Um, Senator Young was asking about this sort of set of asymmetric threats that Russia brings to bear. Um, Russia thrives in neighboring countries with weak rule of law, right? Some of Russia's tools are pretty sophisticated. Some of them aren't, right? Some of them are just paying people off in order to do what they want, which is easier to do in places that you know, don't have uh, a strong system of rules, a strong democratic history, a free press. Um, so maybe drawing on your experience in Armenia, talk a little bit about um, how America's commitment to the rule of law, right, is, is not just about trying to sort of stand up healthy democracies. It's also about pushing back on Russia's ability to get what it wants by preying on countries that have weak rule of law. Uh, Senator, thank you. Uh, you know, I... Uh, I think that, first of all, I, I want to acknowledge uh, with respect to Armenia, and this is true in, in a, for a number of former Soviet Union countries, uh, the, the great importance of the investment that the United States has made through assistance that Congress has provided uh, to, uh, to development assistance, uh, to, to economic um, uh, development, uh, but maybe um, most importantly to investment in people, uh, young leaders, uh, and uh, that, uh, that matters because, you know, what we saw, in, for instance, in, in Armenia in 2018, this was totally homegrown. The, 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 uh, the, the leadership of, um, and the, the movement to call for um, an end to corruption in government, uh, and, so, you know, when I, when I think about um, 
when I think about that, part of that also relates to Russia. Uh, as I, um, I noted earlier, uh, you know, I think what we've seen in the last two elections in Armenia is people turning away from, from the model that Russia offers, uh, looking for something uh, better for, for a government that is accountable. Uh, and uh, even though people had um, uh, experienced something very traumatic in 2020, um, with the, the conflict, uh, they didn't want to go back to, to, to corruption. And I think it's because they see what Russia represents. Um, uh, they see how the, the country is run. And, and I think that, that, you know, as I said, that that investment in, in people who have uh, the opportunities to, to, to be credible journalists, to, um, uh, to provide strong accountability to, to government institutions. I mean, these are all the things that we can be do, continuing to do, not just in places like Armenia, that I think um, uh, act as a hedge against the kind of model and, and malign influence that Russia represents. Well, many of us see this at work in the Balkans as well, countries that um, have weaker rules structures. Those are the places where Russia plays more vigorously. You also speak to this broader opportunity that exists in every crisis. You can always find a little hidden nugget of opportunity. And there are countries all along Russia's periphery that are um, now entertaining closer relations with the United States as a hedge against a neighbor who has now shown no compunction about moving troops uh, across border Central Asia as a Another example of that. Um, in the remaining 50 seconds, just um, uh, a word from you uh, on what you have learned about um, Moscow's current disposition on a nuclear weapon armed Iran, right? Russia stood with us in the JCPOA negotiations. They now are in a different place because they are relying on Iran to provide uh, critical weapons for the fight in Ukraine. So um, have you learned that there is any prospect for Russia continuing to be a partner if we were ever able to get back into a conversation with Iran on their nuclear future, or is their relationship with Tehran uh, fundamentally changed? Uh, Senator, uh, this is not an area that, that I uh, have um, had a chance to have consultations on or been read into, but uh, clearly I will be happy to take that question for the record and be back to you. Great. I'll uh, follow up with you on that. Thank you. Uh, Senator Risch. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thank you, Ms. Tracy, for willing to take on this job. This is going to be a tough one. There's no question about it. Probably the toughest one you've had and that you ever will have in uh, your position with the State Department. Um, and, for, and thank you for talking with me about the sensitive area that we talked about and uh, we'll talk about in, in another, in a classified setting at some point. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you understand the issues there and, uh, and are, are willing to engage on that. Um, I, I'd like to get your thoughts generally on, um, on diplomat, what, what you envision diplomatic engagement is going to be like uh, in Moscow. I, I, obviously, you're going to spend a lot of your time on the related things like security and facilities and management and staffing. But um, obviously, uh, we all know what the usual type of diplomatic engagement is with a country. In discussing this with uh, our diplomatic engagement with Russia, with uh, NSC people and, and State Department people, um, seems to be a pretty heavy lift at the present time. And, uh, and what, have you got any thoughts on that, uh, of, of how you'll engage in that? 
Senator, thank um, ranking member, thank you very much. Uh, uh, and and you're absolutely right. Uh, this is probably going to be the toughest uh, assignment of my career. You know, one of um, we were already seeing um, during my tenure as 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 DCM in Moscow uh, a real shrinking of um, the the channels of communication. The Russians uh, withheld a lot of meetings from us. Um, uh, but I think one thing that we had to continue to do was to ask and to probe and to see where we were able to 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 um, uh, open up um, open up channels. So I certainly intend to do that uh, uh, to see what that may yield. Um, uh, and Ambassador Sullivan shared with me the channels that he was able to maintain. You know, another, um, I think another very important uh, constituency uh, in Moscow are, uh, are our partners and allies and ensuring that we're, we're lashed up there very closely. So that is, um, that is something that I saw when I was uh, in Moscow in my earlier um, uh, assignment that I, I thought was very important to, to being effective uh, as an embassy. Uh, and then... Uh, to the extent that I can, uh, to be reaching out and getting out. Uh, I don't know what kind of reception I'll get in some places. I mean, I think this is going to be one of those um, situations where you have to, to to test the water, but I do think it is important uh, that we continue to be out and about uh, to the extent that we can. Well, I, I really appreciate that, and I think that's uh, probably the best you're going to be able to do, what you just described. I, I would note that uh, I think as far as our allies are concerned, Good share of them aren't in any better uh, shape than we are as far as their relationship uh, with Moscow. So uh, you'll you'll have uh, comrades in arms there in any event. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Barrasso. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about uranium because Russia uses energy as a geopolitical weapon. Uh, for years, I've raised concerns about the risks posed by being dependent on Russia for energy resources. Uh, in 2021. Uh, Russia was our third largest supplier of uranium, 14% of U.S. demand, and every dollar we give to Russia state uh, supports Putin's war on Ukraine. So despite the administration's so-called ban on Russian energy, we're still importing Russian uranium. Uh, do you agree that the U.S. needs to ban Russian uranium? Senator, my understanding is that we are working very closely with our allies and partners, uh, including in the G7, to reduce and ultimately eliminate our reliance on Russian uranium services. Uh, several countries in Europe uh, have taken important steps to reduce their reliance uh, on Russian uranium services uh, and nuclear fuel since uh, the beginning of Russia's war in Ukraine. The administration is, is also focused on this issue here at home. Uh, by working to identify domestic solutions that support our foreign policy goals and address our own strategic vulnerability. Uh, and I would just commit to you that I will certainly be supporting uh, those efforts uh, and looking for ways that we can reduce that strategic vulnerability. In, in terms of strategic vulnerabilities, let me move on to rising energy prices and what that means uh, 
for helping Russia fund their war, their killing machine. Uh, reducing the amount of Russian energy going to Europe would hurt Russia's economy. The oil and gas revenues make up about half of Russia's national budget. Um, 2021, Russia sold $100 billion worth of oil and natural gas to Europe. With natural gas prices increasing, oil surpassing at times $100 a barrel, more of our allies' money uh, basically lines the pockets of, of Putin. It's a windfall, I believe, for Russia. As a result, the amount of Russian energy going to Europe is a major problem. Is there a national security issue when our allies and partners are increasingly dependent on Russian energy sources? Senator, what I believe we're seeing uh, uh, in the wake of Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, is that uh, our allies and partners uh, have seen that Russia is not a reliable energy partner. Uh, we've seen uh, significant drops uh, in, in certain parts of the energy uh, landscape. Uh, I think we're, we're expecting potentially to see more uh, starting December 5th. Uh, and uh, we need to continue doing that to, to um, as a part of uh, that, um, not just um, focusing on reducing the, the dependency on Russia, but then providing uh, alternatives uh, that, that can give um, the Europeans uh, a stable energy supply from other, um, from other locations. Yeah, as you use the phrase alternatives and then a reliable energy partner, which is what they're looking for long term, uh, do you support quickly increasing U.S. exports of natural gas to Europe to help reduce their dependence on Russia's natural gas? Yes, Senator, I do. Okay. I wanted to talk about what's happening with Ukrainian children. And you've read that since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there have been reports of Putin ordering the transfer of Ukrainian children to Russia to be adopted and become citizens of Russia. Uh, our, UN our U.S. ambassador to the U.N., uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, reported that thousands of Ukrainian children have been taken from their homes or orphanages uh, before being put up for adoption in Russia. Uh, she said more than 1,800 children, I mean, it's an astonishingly large number, were transferred from Russian-controlled areas of Ukraine to Russia. I think she said in just July alone, so in one month. Uh, in May, Putin signed a decree making it easier for Russia to adopt and give citizenship to Ukrainian children. And the New York Times had an article in October titled, Using Adoptions, Russia Turns Ukrainian Children into the Spoils of War. Uh, the Associated Press had an article titled, how Russia grabs Ukrainian kids and, and makes them Russians. So, so how can the U.S. and the international community hold Putin accountable uh, for the large-scale forced relocation and deportation of this program? Senator, uh, what you've just described is absolutely uh, sickening and horrible. Uh, uh, and uh, I certainly commit uh, to, to you and to this committee that uh, one of the uh, first things I'll be doing is, is uh, if confirmed, is reaching out to my colleague, uh, Ambassador Brink, uh, in Kiev, uh, um, so that we have a good coordination there on, on some of the, the information uh, that's coming out. Um, I think how we, we hold Russia accountable is... Uh, to um, uh, support and and engage in as much documentation as we can to expose these uh, um, uh, uh, these these horrible practices, and then uh, uh, I think uh, to 
um, look for uh, approaches and avenues where we can can um, uh, certainly in the case cases that you're describing uh, where we've had had children separated to get children back to their parents. Uh, I don't I don't have an answer right here for how that is, but I I do think it is very important to have that channel. Uh, or that have that that um, emphasis on approaches that that look at restoring children to their families. Thank you, thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Ambassador Tracy. One last question. Um, you know, we had a hearing here on the caucuses. It was one of the most disappointing hearings uh, I've ever conducted. Um, you've been the ambassador to Armenia, so uh, let me ask you, and, and I'll relate this to uh, your post that you're. Uh, uh, would be confirmed for. Uh, have you seen the videos of the execution of Armenian soldiers by Azerbaijan? Senator, yes, I have. And, and I've also seen um, the video of, uh, it was one of the most sickening things I've seen in my life of um, the mutilation and desecration of a female Armenian soldier. Um, uh, and when the report first emerged uh, of um, that this video was, was, was circulating, I reached out to uh, Armenia's human rights ombudsperson, uh, Christina Grigoryan, who's a, a rising star in Armenia. She's been in a very important partner with us in, in law enforcement reform, but she'd moved over to the ombudsperson's office. Uh, I went to see her. She was engaging in um, uh, efforts to, to, to document, authenticate um, uh, what we were seeing in these videos. Uh, you know, she was working, uh, she told me, and I have great confidence in, in what she was saying uh, to, uh, to use best international practices. Uh, and they were able to, to identify, um, they identified the female uh, soldier. I think they were identifying then. There were some other, there were some other um, bodies in the, in the video. And uh, so, um, so you know. So they not only identified, did they, did they, um Authenticate that, in fact, these actions took place. Um, you know what? Th I think what they they authenticated uh, that um, uh, who these individuals were um, and the state in which their bodies were. Um, what I remember um, from, uh, particularly from the um, uh, the video with uh, the the female soldier being mutilated, it was hard to see who was acting um, uh, in the video. Um, but what I, but I, what I want to assure you of is that um, uh, we reported these conversations, what the ombudsperson's office was doing, um, uh, and what we're focused on right now is accountability. Uh, and I think accountability you, who did, who, is- Who did you report them to? Who did you report them to? Um, to the to the State Department, to Washington. Well, this is a, at least a much better set of answers that I, that I got than I got at the other hearing, where no one knew uh, about, either didn't know about the videos, or in the case of Ambassador Reeker, did know about the videos, but no one had done anything to determine the authentic, uh, authenticity and legitimacy of it. Now, I have no reason to dispute the videos that I've seen. 
but it seems to me, and the reason I want to connect this, you're, you're, you're the president ambassador to Armenia, and you're nominated for something else, but here's the point. We need our ambassadors, particularly in places of conflict, to be able to pursue what the truth is so that we, as policyholders, can then decide what we do about that truth. Um, and since you're going to Russia, obviously Russians are being arrested for their dissidency. Um, others have been attacked. Some supposedly have been killed. We need, to the extent possible, the U.S. ambassador uh, in Moscow to do what I would want to have seen uh, done as it relates to Armenia, to identify where these abuses have taken place, try to authenticate it, and then report it on it in a way that then we, that it's actionable at the end of the day. So that's the spirit in which I'm asking you the questions. I expect that if you are confirmed, you will do that uh, in Moscow uh, to the best of your ability. Senator, yes, I will. I, I certainly pledge that. Um, and very much um, uh, uh, due to some of the um, the experiences that I've had as ambassador to Armenia, some of what I've seen from conflict there, uh, and the need for accountability uh, um, uh, and to, to, to pursue justice in, in some of these uh, very egregious situations. All right. Without accountability, there isn't justice. Uh, thank you for your testimony uh, before the committee. Uh, we will be submitting, uh, members will be submitting questions for the record. I'd urge you to answer them as expeditiously and fully as possible so that we can consider your uh, nomination before a business committee. With the thanks of the committee, you're excused. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, members of the committee, thank you very much. Thank you. Let's bring in, uh, up our second panel. Uh, the hearing continues. The second panel, we consider uh, remaining uh, uh, four nominations. Uh, I understand that Senator Shaheen will be introducing Ambassador Fisher, and Senator Van Hollen will be introducing Ms. Spahn. So, uh, let's uh, turn to uh, Senator Shaheen first. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to each of the nominees this afternoon. I appreciate your letting me go first since I have a four o'clock appointment. I will be back, however, but it really is my honor to introduce Ambassador Fisher today as this committee considers her nomination to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Cyprus. Ambas Ambassador Fisher and I spent a very interesting um, day in Warsaw um, at right before the start of the war in Ukraine, actually, this year. Um, and I know and had reinforced for me then what a great job she has done. She has served our country with distinction from her previous roles as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Western Europe and the European Union to Deputy Permanent Representative of the U.S. Mission to NATO. Most recently, Ambassador Fisher represented the United States as the Special Envoy to Belarus, and that's um, the role in which we were dining in Warsaw. Um, however, against circumstances not of her own doing, Ambassador Fisher hasn't had the opportunity to put her ambassadorial title to full use, because despite being nominated and confirmed by this body as Ambassador to Belarus in 2020, the first time the position had been filled since 2008, Ambassador Fisher was forced to serve as a U.S. Special Envoy in Lithuania after the Belarusian authorities refused to grant her accreditation. 
Ambassador Fisher was a committed partner to the Belarusian people, nonetheless, who continue to peacefully advocate for a democratic future for themselves and their country. Ambassador Fisher recognized the need to keep the democratic movement in the spotlight and secured meetings for opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovskaya with U.S. leaders, including President Biden. This was critical to conveying to the rest of Europe and the world that she has support from the United States, both Ambassador Fisher and the opposition. Ambassador Fisher also worked effectively with Congress to humanize the plight of the Belarusian people and keep members apprised on the political situation in the country. With her support and her role as special envoy, I co-founded the Free Belarus Caucus with Senator Wicker to continue advocating for democracy and free and fair elections in Belarus, where Putin's puppet, Lukashenko, continues to tighten his authoritarian grip, crack down on free press, and threaten the sovereignty of Ukraine. Ambassador Fisher showed why this role is so critical. I saw Svetlana Tikhonovskaya a few weeks ago, where she also called for a successor to this important position. I hope that the State Department can announce a successor without delay. I look forward to see her apply the same level, he or she, apply the same level of energy and expertise um, to that position as Ambassador Fisher has. And I expect that Ambassador Fisher will apply that level of energy and expertise to her new position as Ambassador to Cyprus. Amid renewed tensions with Turkey and Russia's malign influence throughout Europe, we need a diplomat like Ambassador Fisher to promote American interests in the Mediterranean. I know she will continue to serve the American people well, and I urge my colleagues to advance her nomination without delay. Congratulations, Ambassador Fisher. Thank you, thank, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Risch, Senator Shaheen. Uh, and I want to congratulate all the nominees um, here today, and I think the President has chosen wisely. Uh, I'm here to introduce the President's nominee to serve as the next Director of the Peace Corps, Carol Spahn. Uh, the President has picked somebody with vast experience, impeccable character, and sharp intellect. And President Biden has also selected a Marylander for this role, uh, which Senator Cardin and I think shows a special wisdom. But beyond being a Marylander, and very seriously, there's no doubt in my mind that Ms. Spahn has the background and the wisdom to excel in this role. From January 2021 to November 2022, during some of the toughest days of the pandemic, she served as CEO of the Peace Corps and had to navigate the Corps through that difficult period. As most Corps members had to return home, many were then effectively deployed to support public health vaccination campaigns across the United States, including over 60 Corps volunteers in my state of Maryland. Her good stewardship of the Corps helped get shots in arms and save lives across our country. That effort was just the most recent chapter in a storied career of service. Ms. Spahn's connection to the Peace Corps dates all the way back to 1994, when she served as a volunteer in Romania. Since then, she has been Chief of Operations in the Africa region and Country Director for Malawi, among other important assignments, both inside and outside the Corps. Beyond this impressive resume and set of assignments, uh, I am absolutely confident, and I'm confident that the committee will agree, uh, that Ms. Spahn has the character and qualities that will help her succeed in this important position. I had the opportunity to speak with her 
uh, many months ago, talking about the important role of the Peace Corps around the world, including in Africa, where Senator Rounds and I, as subcommittee chair and ranking member, spend a lot of time. I was struck by Ms. Spahn's devotion to the Peace Corps and her determination to serve our fellow Americans and others around the world. That meeting left no doubt in my mind that she's ready for this important challenge at this important moment. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, in my view, the Peace Corps is more than an opportunity for service. It's an important part of our identity as a nation and central to what we stand for. I've witnessed that truth firsthand. As many of you know, I grew up in a foreign service family and spent many early years overseas. One memory from that stands out with respect to the Peace Corps. I was traveling with my parents to a remote village in Sri Lanka as sort of an early teenager. It was a very remote village. We went into a hut there, and there inside the hut hung a portrait of John F. Kennedy. And the reason that portrait was there, even 10 years after President Kennedy had been assassinated and half a world away from the United States of America, was that the Peace Corps had been in that village. The Peace Corps had been there helping dig wells, helping with sanitation projects, and that left an imprint and memory on all the villagers about what America stood for and the fact that we could be a force of good and for justice and hope around the world. And Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, uh, we must continue to live up to that standard. And I'm absolutely confident that Carol Spahn can help us do exactly that so that years from now, there will continue to be a presence of the American force for good in villages halfway around the world. And people know what the United States stands for. And I know she will continue to carry that torch and that tradition. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to both of our colleagues, distinguished members of this committee. Um, let me uh, say to all of our nominees, congratulations again to you, to your families who are part of service in our country. We appreciate their willingness to sacrifice. Uh, let me just go through a few of our nominees, and then we'll hold, uh, we'll listen to uh, Senator Risch, and then begin testimony. I'll begin uh, with Ms. Coven. Is that the correct, correct pronunciation? Kavin, Kavin, okay, I'm sorry, who has been nominated to be the ambassador to Armenia. It's a challenging moment for Armenia. Uh, we've seen recent attacks from Azerbaijan, bless you, uh, videos of what appear to be war crimes, as well as longstanding humanitarian crises brought on by the war in Nagorno-Karabakh. I was incredibly disappointed by the State Department's responses in our recent hearing on the South Caucasus. And so, Ms. Kavin, I expect you as well as all of our nominees today, to respect the committee's oversight role and be responsive to the committee's requests for information. In the case of Armenia, it will be your responsibility to ensure that the American people do not look the other way when we uncover human rights violations and atrocities committed against Armenia. Armenia is connected to the United States by the loving concern of countless Armenian-American families. This is a diaspora community that is on the knife edge between the hope of peace and the terror of ethnic cleansing. Ambassador Fisher, your appointment to Cyprus comes as this important country is growing closer to the United States. Cyprus is a key part in the Western response to Russian aggression in Ukraine. 
Cyprus's energy resources can and should be part of the solution to Putin's energy warfare directed at Europe. At the same time, I look forward to hearing how you plan to tackle the challenge of an increasingly belligerent Erdogan in Turkey. I want to hear your views today on Erdogan's assertiveness in Verosha, as well as what you'll do to ensure the sustainability of the UN mandate in Cyprus. The administration's decision to lift restrictions on the sale of U.S. military equipment to Cyprus is authorized in the Eastern Mediterranean Security and Energy Partnership Law that I authored was welcomed news. I look forward to hearing your vision on how we can take this relationship to the next level in further developing our energy and security cooperation. I'd also like to hear your views on the 3 plus 1 regional format among the United States, Cyprus, Israel, and Greece, for which the administration unfortunately has done little to promote over the past two years. Ms. Spawn, you'll take charge of the Peace Corps as you continue to return thousands of volunteers back to the field. It has been two years since the Peace Corps had to make the difficult decision to send all volunteers home due to the pandemic. I know you have played an important role in this process, ensuring volunteer and host community safety and implementing reforms to adapt to a post-COVID world. Peace Corps represents one of the United States' greatest foreign policy and diplomacy tools, helping those in need around the world. Even as competitors and uh, adversaries try to challenge us in every corner of the globe, the Peace Corps represents the United States to the world who we truly are, a giving and generous nation. As you know, I introduced the Peace Corps Reauthorization Act with Senator Risch. The bill passed uh, out of our committee by voice vote in July. We need to see it enacted uh, this year. This bipartisan legislation supports the real-time needs of volunteers as they re-enter the field, as well as volunteers returning home, which are critical for a well-run Peace Corps. So I look forward to hearing from you about your vision for the Peace Corps as it meets these challenges and seizes the opportunities as a critical arm of U.S. foreign policy. Ms. Dyer, as director of the Office to Combat and Monitor Trafficking, you'll be tackling one of the most heinous crimes in the world. And despite progress in recent years, modern-day slavery remains prevalent. Human trafficking remains a horrific reality for tens of millions of people around the world. We need to redouble our effort to prevent trafficking, hold traffickers accountable, and to support victims. I expect you to be a strong, effective leader at the Office to Combat and Monitor Trafficking. You're exceptionally qualified for this position given your extensive experience. And as a nominee of both the Bush and Biden administrations, it is clear that your commitment to the issue transcends party lines. As you know, I was proud to pass out of the committee earlier this year a bipartisan bill with uh, Senator Risch, the International Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act. I urge my colleagues in the Senate to agree to its swift passage on the floor. And I look forward to hearing about how you intend to elevate and advance this important fight. With that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Richter's comment. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the panel uh, for being here today. Uh, certainly four uh, uh, important uh, appointments. On Armenia, the U.S. has a valuable role to play in resolving the tenuous relationship between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, at the centerpiece of the conflict, of course, uh, is the disputed uh, territories and the need to, to find a stable solution that protects the rights of Armenians and Azeris living there. With Russia pulling back in the region, there is now a limited opportunity for the U.S. to take a stronger role and help end the bloodshed. 
With regard to Cyprus, our relationship is changing due to Cyprus' progress in cleaning up its financial sector, as well as its growing ties with Greece and Israel. Just a few months ago, the State Department waived the arms embargo that it has had on Cyprus since 1987, which will open a door to closer cooperation and hopefully some improvements in areas of mutual interest in the Eastern Mediterranean. I, ex I expect that strong U.S. leadership will continue to advance this progress and closer bilateral relations will open up new opportunities for the United States to work with parties on the island to find a lasting and stable solution for reunification. I thank uh, Ambassador Fisher for being willing uh, to serve the United States and Cyprus, and I look forward to hearing how you will approach these complex issues. I'm, I'm glad to finally have a nominee for the important position of Ambassador-at-Large to monitor and combat uh, trafficking. Uh, thus far, I've been disappointed with the Biden administration's communication with Congress on human trafficking and hope that filling this position will grant this important issue the attention that it deserves. As the chairman noted, he and I worked together on the International Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, which would reform and modernize the State Department's efforts to combat and uh, monitor human trafficking. We look forward to progress. I look forward to hearing from you, Ms. Dyer, on your views of how to improve U.S. Effort, efforts to combat human trafficking around the globe. And finally, after COVID-19 forced a total global evacuation of the Peace Corps, the organization has taken some steps to increase safety measures as well as gradual re-entry to countries of service. Additionally, it is no secret that the Peace Corps has had its share of safety and security concerns prior to this global evacuation. That is why I worked with the chairman on our Peace Corps reauthorization bill to address these challenges and ensure the TASE volunteers are equipped with the best training and knowledge to re-enter their countries of service. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Ms. Uh, Spahn, for your prior service in the Peace Corps and for the willingness to serve in this capacity. I look forward to hearing how you will approach the ongoing safety and security issues that many volunteers uh, should you be confirmed. And I know you've had uh, quite a bit of experience in that direction, so uh, uh, Ms. Spahn, we're looking forward to good and great and glorious things from you. With that, uh, I'll turn it back to the Chair. Thank you. Okay, we'll turn to our nominees. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. Uh, we ask that each of you summarize your statement in about five minutes so that members of the committee can engage with you in the conversation. We'll start with you, uh, Ambassador Fisher, and uh, go down the line. Okay. Thank you, sir. Um, please allow me uh, just to say a quick a word of appreciation to Senator Shaheen for her kind words and for her support. She has shown so much leadership on issues on which I have worked, NATO, Belarus, uh, now Cyprus, and she has truly been a champion um, for those of us in the State Department. I very much appreciate that. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Mish, Rish, members of this committee, Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the ambassador to the Republic of Cyprus. As ambassador designate for Belarus and then subsequently as special envoy, it was a privilege for me to work closely with the members and staff of this committee. If given the opportunity to serve as ambassador to Cyprus, I count on our continued consultation and coordination to advance key priorities in the context of our fundamental commitment to a Europe that is whole free, and at peace. These objectives have defined my career, and in my leadership roles, I've sought to build teams with a clear view of our guiding mission to protect and advance the interests of the American people. 
I know firsthand there is no greater responsibility than the safety and security of American citizens and our embassy team. If confirmed, this would be my highest priority. So in this context, I'm committed to continuing our efforts to locate and return home three Americans still missing since the tragic events of 1974. This committee knows well that Cyprus sits on a critical seam between the Middle East and Europe. The Republic of Cyprus is a highly valued partner and our bilateral relationship has deepened significantly in recent years on a range of priorities from strengthening security in the Eastern Med to expanding economic and commercial ties. The results of this cooperation have been most evident in the Republic of Cyprus's partnership in responding to Russia's brutal full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Our national security strategy highlights Russia's immediate and persistent threat to international peace and stability and calls for transatlantic unity in countering Russia's threat. The Republic of Cyprus has had a direct impact in holding the Kremlin to account for its war of choice against Ukraine. As a result of this values-based decision, Cyprus has weathered significant economic disruption and despite this, continues to take actions that demonstrate its commitment to stand with Ukraine, including welcoming more than 14,000 Ukrainian refugees this year. I'm pleased to see our bilateral cooperation growing in new and tangible ways. In April, we jointly opened the US-funded, state-of-the-art Cyprus Center for Land, Open Seas, and Port Security to strengthen maritime and border security training across the region. We also signed a science and technology agreement, paving the way for increased scientific collaboration between our nations. And our shared commitment to combat trafficking in persons is yielding meaningful progress. Cyprus is an increasingly inviting market for American tech companies, and American firms are leading the development of offshore hydrocarbon resources around the island. These investments will help Cyprus become a critical contributor to, to Europe's energy security, countering both Russia's weaponization of energy and PRC coercive economic influence in the region. If confirmed, I will work to ensure that American enterprise and American products are what come to mind when Cypriots look for trusted business partners. And specifically with the leadership of this committee, Cyprus, Greece, and Israel, plus the United States, are forging new ground in the three plus one format to promote regional cooperation on a broad range of pressing issues. Mr. Chairman, let me say this regarding the division of Cyprus. The United States remains clear that the status quo is unacceptable. If given the opportunity to serve, I will use the full weight of my office to support Cypriot-led, UN-facilitated efforts to reunify Cyprus as a bi-zonal, bi-communal federation with political equality for all Cypriots. I will meet with Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots to advance our unwavering commitment to human rights and fundamental freedoms and seek their feedback as they work to realize the benefits of reaching the comprehensive settlement which has eluded them for decades. There is just no escaping the unjust costs of division that have fallen on all Cypriots. In a 2014 visit to Cyprus, then Vice President Biden outlined a vision for a future generation of Cypriots who might grow up without the burden of conflict. This vision can animate new efforts towards a reunified Cyprus, creating meaningful prosperity for all Cypriots and unlocking greater stability in this critical region. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joined today by my husband, Matthew Fisher. I would not be before you without his support over my 27-year career, 
He's been my chief advisor on bidding, my chief morale officer on tough days, and chief of dinner procurement on late nights. I have been so very lucky to have him in my corner. Chairman, our members of the committee, thank you again for the opportunity to appear today, and I do look forward to your questions. Well, <clears throat> thank you for your testimony. I, I'll just say, out of all of those titles you gave your husband, uh, the, the, uh, the dinner one is very important. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Senator Merkley uh, has a, uh, has a request to uh, speak to Ms. Spahn's um, nomination because he has to leave. So, uh, I've agreed to do that. Uh, Senator Merkley. I'm going to keep this uh, extremely brief. First, all four of you, thank you very much for your. Mm your service to international diplomacy. It's so important that we get you into these key positions with various challenges we have in the world. I unfortunately do a scheduling conflict and the hearing went a little longer than we anticipated. I'm going to have to, to leave uh, before the rest of the testimony. Uh, I won't be able to ask questions, but I did want to say how pleased I am and how much I appreciate the ranking member and the chairman uh, scheduling the hearing for the, our Peace Corps nominee. Carol Spahn. I believe in the beautiful work of the Peace Corps around the world, what the volunteers do in so many ways to assist some of the most challenging places. It's a, a ch very challenging work, having spent some time working in villages in different parts of the world. I identify with it, though I wasn't a Peace Corps member. And this is an exciting time with COVID uh, de declining and the opportunity to send volunteers back into many parts of the world. And I know that one has to, to monitor the, the violence and the conflict to decide when and where one can reestablish nominees. I'm very pleased to see the first delegation having gone to Vietnam. And um, I just want to thank you specifically, Ms. Spahn, for your bringing your Peace Corps experience to bear. I, I hope that uh, all goes smoothly and we get you on the job very quickly. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Merkley. Ms. Kavine. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee for the opportunity to appear before you today. I'm honored to be President Biden's nominee for the position of Ambassador to the Republic of Armenia, and I am grateful for the trust and confidence the President and Secretary Blinken have placed in me. If confirmed, I commit to working closely with this committee and all members of Congress to advance U.S. interests in Armenia. I'm a career foreign service officer with 30 years of experience. Most of my career has focused on Europe, guided by my conviction that a Europe whole, free and at peace is in the best interests of the United States. Our successes in Europe since the breakup of the Soviet Union have created more stable and capable allies and partners, open markets for US goods, and ultimately protected and defended the people of the United States. I'm proud to have played a role in advancing U.S. strategic interests in Europe for over five administrations. I appreciate the leadership of the members of this committee and your work across Europe to resolve conflicts and support reforms in young democracies. I know firsthand that bipartisan support at home puts the United States in the strongest position to advance U.S. interests abroad. My recent diplomatic experience in Ukraine has only reinforced for me the importance of supporting the right of every country to choose its own path. 
forge its own alliances, and defend its own economic and political interests in line with the desires and aspirations of its people. If confirmed, I pledge to work with you to strengthen Armenia's democracy, security, and economy, or in a word, its sovereignty. If confirmed, I would prioritize the safety and security of American citizens and our talented embassy team and their families. I would also continue the efforts of my distinguished predecessor, Ambassador Lynn Tracy, to support Armenia's anti-corruption initiatives, civil society, independent media, business development, regional integration, and efforts to counter malign influence. I would work with Armenians to help foster an impartial, independent judiciary and to safeguard respect for freedom of expression. In doing so, I would focus on ensuring that U.S. taxpayer money is spent effectively in support of U.S. goals and objectives. The peaceful set settlement of the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict is essential to a more secure and prosperous future for Armenia and for the South Caucasus. The United States is working through bilateral and multilateral channels to help the sides achieve a peaceful, lasting, negotiated settlement of the conflict based on the principles of the UN Charter and the Helsinki Final Act. If confirmed, I will support the administration's commitment to achieving this goal. I grew up in Fresno, California, home to one of the largest Armenian diaspora communities in the United States. My teachers and friends of Armenian heritage spoke of the Ottoman-era genocide that forced many of their families to seek new homes in America. As President Biden said on Armenian Remembrance Day this year, as we mourn the Meds Yagern, let us redouble our efforts towards healing and building the better, more peaceful world that we wish for our children. If confirmed, I commit to doing everything in my power to remember the victims of the Armenian genocide and support a peaceful future for Armenia. To this end, I will do all I can to encourage ongoing normalization discussions between Armenia and Turkey, which have made some step forward. I want to conclude by thanking those who have made it possible for me to be here today. I am joined by my husband, Tom White, who has been my partner th through 13 moves and eight countries, and my daughter, Hannah White, who is applying what she learned in her overseas experiences as a high school teacher here in the District of Columbia. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, and members of the committee, thank you again for this opportunity to appear before you today. I welcome your questions. Okay, thank you. Ms. Spahn. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rish, and distinguished members of the committee. I'd also like to thank you for your kind words and support of Peace Corps and Peace Corps reauthorization legislation. And a special note of thanks to Senators Van Hollen and Merkley for their very kind remarks and support of Peace Corps. Um, I'd also like to thank my husband, Andy, who is here with me today. Uh, my daughters, Emily and Casey, my parents, Ralph and Janet, my very large extended family for their unwavering love and support, and to my Peace Corps family, including the staff, volunteers, host families, and counterparts for the heart and soul with which they carry out our mission every day. I am deeply honored and humbled to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee for Director of the Peace Corps at this very unique point in the agency's history. Having started my career in the public sector, I am also incredibly grateful for the opportunity I had to serve as a small business development volunteer, along with my husband, Andy, in Romania shortly after the fall of communism. 
As is true for many volunteers, my Peace Corps service challenged my perceptions, expanded my worldview, and fundamentally transformed my life. Living and working alongside Romanians during their pivotal transition to democracy gave me a deep appreciation for the power of human connection and the importance of engaging across difference with intention, humility, and respect. I carried this understanding with me as I took on various leadership roles at nonprofit organizations dedicated to supporting underserved communities around the world. In 2014, I returned to the Peace Corps, first serving as the country director in Malawi for five years, then as the chief of operations for the Africa region and chief executive officer, and now as an expert consultant. It has been an incredible journey, but my service journey is not unique. We see time and again that Peace Corps service extends well beyond a two-year commitment. It fosters a lifetime of global connection and national service. And the presence of volunteers in the furthest reaches of other countries speaking foreign languages and honoring cultures has an impact that goes far beyond the individual contributions of any one volunteer. I have had the distinct privilege of hearing from foreign ambassadors, ministers, and local leaders who tell me what a powerful signal of friendship it is to see Americans living in rural communities and working side by side with the people of their country. And American ambassadors regularly attest that the Peace Corps is the most cost-effective grassroots diplomacy that the United States has to offer. The Peace Corps' mission of world peace and friendship is more important now than ever. Not only are we just beginning to recover from an unprecedented global pandemic, but we are also reeling from the impacts of a global food crisis, climate change, and growing political and social division. As the world confronts these compounding crises, demand for the Peace Corps has grown, both from the countries we evacuated in 2020, as well as a growing list of countries requesting Peace Corps support today. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee, if confirmed as director, my first priority is to safely return Peace Corps, Peace Corps volunteers to service abroad. And I will do so in a way that helps us to maintain the flexibility necessary to navigate uncertainty and respond effectively to evolving needs. Second, if confirmed, I will ensure that the Peace Corps remains a strong partner to communities and countries that request our support. This includes building on our long commitment to localization and people-centered development while modernizing and expanding service opportunities so that more, more Americans have the opportunity to serve. Third, if confirmed, I will prioritize youth engagement. Today, there are 1.8 billion people between the ages of 10 and 24, the largest generation of youth in history, many of whom live in developing countries. This is not a problem to be solved, it is an opportunity to be met. In partnership, we will contribute to the next generation of global leaders and change makers, a critical investment for a secure, sustainable, and prosperous future. I would also like to again sincerely thank the committee, to thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member for your leadership on the Peace Corps Reauthorization Act. This legislation offers significant changes that will help us to further strengthen our ability to represent America abroad and to bring essential skills in understanding back to the United States. Thank you again for your support of the Peace Corps and for the opportunity to appear before you today. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Dyer. 
Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished senators, thank you for today's hearing to consider my nomination to be the U.S. Ambassador at Large to monitor and combat trafficking in persons. I am honored by President Biden's nomination and the support of Secretary Blinken to lead the United States' global efforts to combat human trafficking. I want to thank my family, particularly my husband, Jason Ankley, whose support and sacrifice has allowed me to pursue a career which is also a passion. I am also thankful for my two children, Aubrey Scott and Evie Claire Ankley, who steadfastly provide me with enough joy and laughter to counter the sometimes heartbreaking challenges that are endemic to this work. And I am grateful for my late mother, Peggy Oswald, who would be so proud to see me sitting here today. I also want to recognize the team in the department's officer, office to monitor and combat trafficking in persons who, thanks to sustained support from Congress, has been leading this cause for more than 20 years. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this committee and across the U.S. Congress to continue advancing this important work. I began my career more than 25 years ago as a prosecutor in the Family Violence Unit in Dallas, Texas. For 13 years, I prosecuted cases at all levels, helping to bring justice to victims, including survivors of human trafficking, by holding offenders accountable. When I was later appointed in 2007 as director of the Department of Justice's Office on Violence Against Women, I led federal efforts to further strengthen our nation's capacity to address violence against women. And then, at Vital Voices Global Partnership, I collaborated with local governments and civil society organizations around the world to strengthen their capacities to respond to crimes and violence against women, including human trafficking. Throughout my work across the local, federal, and international levels, I have learned that successfully combating these crimes requires a sustained and comprehensive approach. In the early 90s, when I first began prosecuting cases, human trafficking was not recognized as a crime. We have come a long way since then, due in large part to the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000 and the comprehensive framework it established to recognize human trafficking as a crime, hold traffickers accountable, and provide critical services to victims and survivors. If confirmed, I will prioritize maintaining the balanced and comprehensive approach the TIP office has carefully developed, focusing on the full spectrum of human trafficking and supporting efforts to prevent and respond to the crime by upholding international legal standards, addressing vulnerabilities that traffickers target, and integrating an equity-based approach throughout the TIP's office's work. The role that survivors or those with lived experience of human trafficking can play in developing and informing anti-trafficking efforts is critical, and it will be among my highest priorities, if confirmed, to elevate their role and integrate their input even further. We need survivors at the table with us, developing victim-centered and trauma-informed solutions to combat sex trafficking and forced labor. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with the U.S. Advisory Council on Human Trafficking and the President's Interagency Task Force to monitor and combat trafficking in persons to ensure that we bring the full resources of the U.S. federal government to bear in the fight against human trafficking. 
The United States' global leadership on this issue is reflected nowhere clearer than the annual Trafficking in Persons Report, the world's most comprehensive resource on governmental anti-trafficking efforts and the U.S. government's principal diplomatic tool to guide relations with foreign governments on human trafficking. If confirmed, I will strive to ensure the report remains objective and accurate and that tier rankings are based solely on a country's efforts to combat trafficking. The TIP offices targeted foreign assistance to build the capacity of governments and civil society and protect victims is integral to the department's holistic anti-trafficking approach. If confirmed, I will leverage the resources that Congress has entrusted to the TIP office to advance programming that is informed by the TIP report and respond to emerging threats and opportunities. In the context of Russia's war on Ukraine, we have an opportunity and obligation to proactively address the threat of human trafficking by applying foreign assistance resources and urging governments to take steps to protect Ukrainian and third country nationals fleeing the war. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, successfully combating human trafficking requires that we confront this crime aggressively. If confirmed, I will draw upon the many tools available at the TIP office diplomacy, foreign assistance, robust interagency coordination to prevent this crime from taking place, protect the victims, and prosecute the traffickers. Thank you for considering my nomination. I welcome your questions. Well, thank you all for your testimony. <clears throat> Before we start a round of five-minute questions, uh, I have, uh, have questions that are on behalf of the committee as a whole, and I simply need a yes or no answer to, uh, by each of you to the following questions. These are questions that speak to the importance of this committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch within its purview. So uh, the first question is, do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Yes. Uh, do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities uh, under your purview? Yes. yes. Uh, do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. yes. And lastly, do you commit to promptly respond to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. yes. All right. So for the record, since not everybody had their microphone on, uh, let me just say that um, all of the uh, nominees before the committee responded yes to each and every one of the questions. So we'll start a, a series of five-minute rounds. Uh, don't take the lack of members here as a, uh, an, a, any uh, negative uh, fact that uh, they're not concerned about your nominations or where you're headed. We have a lot of things going on, so uh, uh, there are different committees. Uh, let me start with you, Ms. Fisher. Uh, clearly, uh, one of the challenges with Cyprus is that there has been an invasion and an occupation that has lasted over four decades, uh, and that continues to be a, a challenge uh, as we seek the reunification uh, of the island under one nation by zonal, by communal federation. Uh, in our efforts to move in, in towards that direction, um, I have uh, believed that President Anastasiadis has actually leaned more forward than any other Cypriot president uh, as it relates to making, uh, I won't say concessions, but to 
trying to find a way forward uh, to do so. And one of the things that frustrates me about the State Department is they call on all sides, but when one side is the aggressor, as in my view Azerbaijan is with uh, uh, Armenia, uh, or in one case, as in the case of Cyprus, where one side is making concessions and the other is not, it's a little frustrating to be called on all sides when, in fact, when there is clarity, uh, clarity should be ultimately called out. So uh, how do you view, especially uh, with uh, President Erdogan uh, seeking to uh, more aggressively take over Varosha, uh, which is in violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Uh, how do you see your role uh, in pushing back on that reality as the United States Ambassador to Cyprus? Um, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Um, and I, I want to I start by recognizing <clears throat> your deep experience on these questions. And, you know, I, I, I truly appear before you today with a tremendous amount of humility about how much experience exists on this committee on these issues um, and how much experience my predecessors, if I were to be confirmed, um, you know, how many incredibly capable diplomats have been at work on this case over decades. Um, I don't underestimate how difficult the challenges are in Cyprus. I do think it is a place where there is tremendous opportunity if we can focus, if we can focus our energies on those on the island, those who are paying the highest price for the divisions currently, and those who will benefit the most from that comprehensive settlement agreement should it be reached. Um, Mr. Chairman, I, what I hope to bring to this is the ability to create space and to bring a sense of urgency uh, to this process. Um, you know, we talk about this, and, and I don't mean to cite it as if it is I'm some robot reciting lines that must be said, but the key part of these talks is that they are Cypriot-led and UN-facilitated. And so first and foremost, that is where I would look, that is where I will look to find the way forward. Um, I think timing is absolutely critical on these issues, and my experience is that we have no time to waste. Uh, the lesson that I have learned directly in the last 15 years, being in Georgia during the Russian invasion, um, being uh, on the margins of this conflict uh, as I worked from Lithuania, and as Belarus was uh, supporting uh, Russia's aggression against Ukraine. What I know is that seams in Europe create opportunities for our adversaries, particularly seams within the transatlantic family. And so I intend to bring a sense of urgency to this well, effort. I appreciate that. A uh, sense of urgency is important because this conflict has lasted way too long. Um, and I agree with you if I've been doing this 30 years. <laughs> Uh, if Turkish and Greek Cypriots were allowed to engage with each other, there'd be a solution. The problem is that Ankara puts their uh, thumb on the scale and doesn't allow Turkish Cypriots to find their own way, which ultimately means that they decide uh, at the end of the day. And so these are some of the things that I think we need to consider 
uh, as we are trying to create a sense of urgency to a resolution. Let me ask you, I'm a strong proponent, as is generated by legislation that I pass or sign into law on the East Med, um, of the cooperation between Cyprus, Greece, and Israel as part of the 3, uh, 3 plus 1 format. Uh, we're looking forward to the first uh, meeting of the 3 plus 1 interparliamentary um, group to discuss energy cooperation as well as other important issues uh, with our allies and partners in the region. But I've been disappointed that there hasn't been more support uh, for the format from the administration. Now, that's beyond your pay grade, uh, so I'm, I'm not holding you responsible for that, but I'm just saying that I hope that the next ambassador to Cyprus is an advocate within the interagency process to say, we've got a tremendous opportunity here. I mean, uh, what opportunities do you see for us to work with Cyprus and our partners uh -huh. in the Eastern Mediterranean to bolster European energy security, uh -huh. uh, to uh, create a bigger uh, uh, ally as it relates to other security, not energy security? Uh -huh. You know, I give credit to the Cypriots that they stopped the Russian ships from ports of call before, uh -huh. before the invasion, before the invasion. Uh, which is incredibly important. So what do you see as some of those opportunities? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I find that these kinds of formats, uh, when we find that they work, when we find um, meaningful discussions in them, that truly uh, we have the opportunity to expand those agendas significantly. You know, you, you've cited uh, the energy issues as, as sort of in, in some of the Eastern Med security as central questions for the three plus one as it is uh, getting started. I, I, my experience has been when we find a format where there's so much to share and so much to learn amongst a group of like-minded partners uh, that truly we can expand this in, in uh, a multitude of directions. I uh, am a... I have found these kinds of formats incredibly meaningful to building bilateral relationships. I, you can count on my support for this. I would also say, Mr. Chairman, um, that the interparliamentary efforts, um, again, I, I will lean on my most recent experience, that the interparliamentary efforts to counter authoritarians in Russia, in Belarus, the, the efforts of you and, and your counterparts in other parliaments in Europe, um, are incredibly meaningful. Um, they are quick, they are responsive to situations, and uh, if you will allow me, it is uh, an issue on which I would very much welcome the opportunity to, consin right. to continue to work with you and your team. All right, thank you. Uh, I have many other questions for the panel, but I'll turn to Senator Van Hollen now. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations again to all of you on your, your nominations. And um, Ms. Kavine, if I could start with you. We had, as you know, um, our current nominee to be ambassador to Russia, had just formally been, or is currently our ambassador to Armenia. And I just want to underscore some of the comments that, that Chairman Menendez made um, at that time. And I'm not even going to ask a question of you at this point in time on this topic. But I do think that in order to be a credible uh, party to any kind of negotiations, we have to call out aggression when we see it. And it was very well documented in September by independent press sources. Um, that uh, Azerbaijan launched attacks 
and also engaged in different kinds of atrocities. And we had a panel of uh, representatives from the State Department uh, a couple weeks ago, I think, Mr. Chairman, and um, some of us pressed on this very fundamental factual question. Has the United States made a determination about who was the aggressor and have we made it clear um, that we agree with all the independent analyses that it was Azerbaijan? And we, we, couldn't, we couldn't get a response. I understand the importance of being a mediator, but in order to be a credible mediator, in my view, you gotta at least begin with the facts and be willing to publicly state them. So you'll be heading off to a, 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 a very important country um, in a very conflicted part of the world, and uh, I hope you'll be willing to call out the facts as, as you see them. Um, Ambassador Fisher, great to see you, and congratulations again, and thank you for bringing the report I drafted as a staff member back in, I think, 1988, entitled, I think it was, New Opportunities for U.S. Policy in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, some things don't change. I, I, I still think there are opportunities, but I think opportunities, again, will only um, make themselves happen, and even then, difficultly, um, if we're willing to put pressure uh, on different parties here. And I think you've followed probably very closely uh, statements that uh, Erdogan has made and actions he's taken. Uh, a little over a year ago, um, he went to Cyprus. He talked about redeveloping Verosha, which as you know is a violation of various UN Security Council resolutions. And he was very brazen about how he said he didn't care what others said. And he won't care as long as no action's taken. And so Senator Menendez and I actually drafted a letter at the time um, urging the Biden administration to work with our EU partners to make it clear in advance that those kind of actions will be met by some form of sanctions, that there's some penalty, some price to be paid. Um, and if there's not, you know, someone like Erdogan will keep on doing what he's doing. He may do it anyway, but he will certainly do it if there's no price uh, to be paid. So as you, as you head off on, on this assignment, if, if confirmed, and I, I expect you will, can you just talk a little bit about your role in the interagency process? Because whether it's Armenia and related to Azerbaijan and other issues in the region, or whether it's Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, Eastern Med, you're there. We have a very good bilateral relationship now with the Republic of Cyprus. And obviously, your first assignment is to make sure we have strong bilateral relations with with the Republic of Cyprus. But beyond that, some of these bigger issues that I know you're going to want to try to challenge, you'll get the Nobel Peace Prize if you do. Um, but no, seriously, you, you uh, on some of these issues, we've got to be willing to push, and that means you're going to have to be a voice in the interagency process um, to push the administration. So I just, I, I want to know if that's something you've done previously and whether that's something you're committed to doing in this case. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Van Hollen. And um, the report is, um, it, it truly is a wonderful reminder, and I'm going to keep it with me. I might ask you to sign up before I leave because it really is a reminder about how many times we have seen opportunity only to be disappointed uh, and how many, how many people have wanted to help bring about that comprehensive settlement um, and have worked so hard. How many Americans have worked in support of that over decades? And so um, it, I was, it really was um, actually a wonderful find and I appreciate it, thank you. Let me say, um, 
And uh, I will, when it comes to the interagency process, um, you know, this is a particular skill set that I believe every nominee the State Department sends to you uh, sits here with um, scars and, uh, you know, scar tissue from, from that process. Um, you know, it's often been compared to a rugby scrum. I'm not sure if that is sufficiently violent. Uh, <laughs> but it is, you know, it, it is um, a big part of our job, right, is, is to be prepared to make the case. And I think every American ambassador, um, every chief of mission is committed to um, giving the best possible advice to the interagency uh, that they possibly can. Um, and that means, in many cases, uh, long nights due to uh, time changes, uh, time zones, and, and these kinds of questions. I am absolutely committed to ensuring um, that uh, the interagency has the full picture of um, what is happening in Cyprus. Um, just as I am committed to working with EU colleagues and others to ensure um, that there are consequences uh, to actions. And uh, I hope that from my record, particularly in my most recent position as Special Envoy to Belarus, um, that the committee can have confidence that I will not shy away uh, from difficult issues, particularly when they involve international law, particularly when they involve uh, human rights and fundamental freedoms, um, that these are of uh, paramount, paramount importance. I appreciate that. And you know, President Biden at one point sat right there where Chairman Menendez is, and I recall him many times uh, talking about uh, justice on Cyprus and needing to push harder. So I think if you can be a strong voice in the interagency process so it can reach the president's ears that he, you'll have a willing, um, a willing partner uh, in the president. Um, Mr. Chairman, can I ask one question? Of the, no. um, Ms. Ms. Spawn, congratulations again. Um, and if you could just give us an update, and I apologize if you already did it. I mean, obviously during COVID, we had to bring everybody home, just about everybody, if not everybody. And I mentioned in my remarks um, on your behalf that you had helped deploy many of those here at home uh, to fight COVID. Where are we now in returning um, the Peace Corps personnel uh, to, to countries around the world? Thank you for that question. It has been a journey. Um, we did evacuate all volunteers, almost 7,000 volunteers in eight days amidst the closing of borders and cancellation of flights, um, which was a real testament to the relationships that Peace Corps has on the ground and our ability to uh, move quickly in, in times of emergency. Um, we are currently have volunteers in 45 countries. Uh, we are inviting volunteers back to 56 countries. Um, and we have around 900 volunteers in the field right now. We are building up gradually and very intentionally as we test our safety and security protocols, both for the volunteers and for the communities that they serve. Um, this is an evolving picture as we move from pandemic to endemic here in the United States. The picture is, is very different in every country around the world. So we have um, very strong systems in place to monitor those conditions. I was just in the Philippines where they just lifted the mask mandate outdoors. Um, so you know our teams there have been supporting uh, COVID vaccination efforts and moves towards, towards normalcy, but we are very aware that different countries have different healthcare systems and different abilities to um, respond should there be you know, another wave 
that, that comes along. So um, I have tremendous confidence in the protocols that we have put in place and uh, we will begin deploying more rapidly um, you know, after those first groups go back. Great, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. So let me return to Ms. Fisher, uh, Ambassador Fisher, uh, just to, on a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, I was pleased to see the uh, Department of State lift defense trade restrictions on the Republic of Cyprus in accordance with the Eastern Mediterranean Security and Partnership Act that uh, Senator Rubio and I passed. I'm also proud to see that after my recommendation, the New Jersey National Guard uh, has been selected as a new state partner for the Republic of Cyprus. Uh, can I get your commitment to build on this progress to further strengthen the security partnership between the United States and Cyprus? Mr. Chairman, absolutely. Um, both uh, Senator Van Hall and I have mentioned Verosha. Uh, Turkish activity in occupied Verosha, including the opening of beaches, um, violates UN Security Council resolutions 550 and 789. It's unacceptable. This is an example of a unilateral action that I was referring to. When you have a unilateral action, can't tell both sides to ultimately, you know, be better when only one side that has, has occupied Verosha is violating UN Security Council resolutions. Um, it threatens the ability to uh, achieve the goal of a bizonal uh, bicommunal federation. Um, if confirmed, uh, can I get your commitment to push back against Turkish violations of UN Security Council resolutions regarding Russia? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm pleased to see the UN extended the UN peacekeeping force in Cyprus to January of 2023. I don't know if you've ever visited Cyprus or not, but if you have and when you go, you'll see the, what we call the green line, the dividing line between the occupied part of Cyprus and the Republic of Cyprus. It's a rather uh, impressive, impressive not in the positive sense, it's a consequential sense. Um, and uh, Turkey's continued occupation and unauthorized activities in what is called the buffer zone, the, the zone between the areas where the Green Line is, is a threat to peace in, in the area. Uh, I hope we, I, I've spoken to our uh, UN ambassador uh, and uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Appreciate that she got this uh, extended to 2023. These are short-term extensions. They don't really solve the ultimate problem, but uh, will you commit to pushing for an extension of the UN peacekeeping force um, as long as we have this division at the Green Line? Mr. Chairman, uh, uh, this peacekeeping force is absolutely uh, playing an essential role, a uh, stabilizing role. Uh, so, uh, yes, sir, you have my commitment. Thank you. Ms. Kavin, uh, since Azerbaijan's attack on Armenia in September, we have seen reports of Azerbaijani forces shooting unarmed Armenians, executing Armenian soldiers, mutilating a female Armenian soldier. Uh, this reports, uh, these reports, I should say, reflect a long history of alleged Azerbaijani war crimes, including during the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war. Uh, would you commit, if you are confirmed, to leading embassy efforts to support the documentation of uh, alleged atrocities committed against Armenians uh, during uh, this recent aggression? Thank you, Senator. Yes, I've seen some of the horrific videos coming out recently uh, of the September, and I would uh, do my best to help with any uh, requests the Armenians have to document. Okay. 
I, I don't want requests from Armenians. I want us to be proactive so we can make a determination. You know, there's something called Section 907, right, uh, that we waive uh, under the Secretary's ability to waive that lets us send money to Azerbaijan. But we should know whether the Azerbaijanis are committing these types of actions so that we can make a determination whether that Section 907 should be waived or not of the Freedom Support Act. So I want an ambassador who's going to proactively help us determine whether these executions, whether these mutilations, whether these other activities are true or not. And to be able to tell the State Department and this committee that in fact they are, they are not, some of them are, some of them are not, so that then we as policymakers can make a decision. Can I depend upon you to do that? Uh, yes, Senator, and I can go further to say that um, accountability for uh, crimes of this nature are very important to me, and I will work to make sure that there is accountability as well. Thank you. I'm glad to see a nominee who actually calls the Armenian genocide genocide. Uh, I've actually, uh, in the past, unfortunately, been in the position of having to stop nominees because they won't consider the genocide a genocide, the genocide is genocide. Uh, at the end of the day, so I'm glad to hear in your remarks you referred to uh, the genocide. I'm also deeply concerned that neither USAID nor the State Department has provided the humanitarian assistance necessary to meet the needs of almost 100,000 people displaced by the Nagorno-Karabakh War of 2020 or the current needs of the people who still reside in the region. If confirmed, would you commit uh, to uh, lead a, a need assessment or to advocate for a needs assessment, at least we should know what the needs are. We may not be the only suppliers of the response to those needs. It might be some type of donors conference, but we need to know what the needs are at the end of the day. Will you support such a needs assessment with embassy, within the embassy? Yes, Senator, I would. Thank you very much. Ms. Spahn, uh, we've talked a little bit uh, about uh, some of what is to come. But why don't you tell us what your priorities will be for the agency? Uh, how will you work to address the lost development gains uh, due to COVID-19, uh, of course, including the increasing threat of climate change, dire humanitarian need in many parts of the globe, uh, including as a result of Putin's ruthless aggression uh, towards Ukraine that has affected global, some global food supplies. Talk to me a little bit about what your priorities would be. Thank you. That's a very big question. In today's climate, there is a lot to address. Um, Peace Corps, as you well know, um, goes into countries at the invitation of governments and works closely with them on their national priorities at the community level. Um, there is tremendous value in Peace Corps' presence overseas. Um, it is well beyond the work of the volunteers. It has symbolic presence um, as well. As I said in my opening statement, we have uh, expressions of interest, letters of invitation from 10 new countries around the world, including several countries in the Pacific. Um, it is my intention to work very closely with those countries to assess their capacity uh, and their um, ability to meet our safety and security, health safety and security um, conditions so that we can expand Peace Corps presence in the Pacific, in Central America, 
and in other countries around the world. Um, it is also a priority that we make Peace Corps service uh, an option for a broader range of people within the United States. Um, we are doing significant outreach into underrepresented communities, and we are looking at expending beyond just recent graduates. Um, we are looking at the great resignation. Um, we are looking at quiet quitting. We are, are looking to engage uh, whether it is a, a farmer in uh, Iowa or a recent graduate in Mexico, a business person in the Bronx, um, to, to give people the opportunity to serve and to be a part of this amazing enterprise. And in this regard, can you tell me uh, what are your goals for restarting missions and to the extent you've had those 10 invitations by countries, how will you prioritize which countries you'll send volunteers back to first? So we're, we're returning volunteers first to the countries that we departed. Um, so we have invitations out to 56 countries. Um, we have several uh, that are uh, facing non-COVID threats, um, places like the Ukraine, Moldova, um, Ethiopia, and, and others that we are looking at the you know, safety and security situation in those countries to evaluate uh, if and when we can go back into those countries. Um, as we look at you know, new country invitations, um, we look holistically at the fit between the, the needs of the country and our ability to, to meet those needs, as well as um, the, the health, safety, and security considerations of those, of those environments. And finally, uh, obviously, we care about the safety of volunteers, Peace Corps volunteers. There are fellow Americans. Yes. Um, as we would care about the safety and security of anybody at an embassy. Uh, how will you um, work to ensure that sites selected for volunteer placement are safe for volunteers? How will you judge uh, where there is maybe active conflict uh, zones? And can I get your commitment that you'll consult with me and my staff on oversight efforts with respect to re-entry, specifically in conflict areas? So first, uh, to answer your, your last question, yes, um, you have my commitment to work with, with you and your teams. Um, we do have security personnel in every country. They liaise very closely with the embassy and the, the RSO at the embassy to uh, monitor the, the conditions in that country and different regions of that country. We also have regional security staff and a team at headquarters that are monitoring events. We know that there is there are active conflict zones in a number of, of countries where we have traditionally had operations, and we do not send volunteers back into those countries without doing an on-the-ground assessment and without the collaboration and support of the embassy. Very good. With respect to specific sites, I can say that um, those are also carefully uh, monitored and selected with a, a set of uh, criteria um, that are standard across all of our countries. Ms. Dyer, uh, many victims of human trafficking are migrant domestic workers. Millions of women from South Asia, Africa, and elsewhere leave their homes in pursuit uh, of uh, decent work uh, to provide for their families. Instead, uh, many of these migrant women find themselves in conditions that amount to forced labor and experience extraordinary abuse, sometimes sexual abuse as well. 
What do you believe is the role of the Office uh, to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons, or JTIP, as we refer to, in coordinating U.S. government efforts to address the rights of vulnerable domestic workers and the underlying root causes that make these migrant women particularly vulnerable to forced labor, debt bondage, and other forms of human trafficking? Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for that really thoughtful question, and I, I share your concern. Um, one of the things that I observed um, during my years of working in trafficking is that domestic servants are uniquely vulnerable because they are so very isolated. They are frequently reliant on the owner of the home to give them care, to even let them out. And they don't have access sometimes to even some of the services or access to know that those services are available. So I share your concern. Um, if I am confirmed, I would work closely to be sure that the Trafficking in Persons Report, which is our gold standard and our chief diplomatic um, and diagnostic tool, addresses these issues, that each country that has this issue, and most countries do, that it is called out. Um, if I, I, I particularly appreciate the fact that um, this is something that we have even in the United States, and when we see it, we need to call it out here too. Um, I would especially look forward to using the Trafficking in Persons Report to not only help us determine what conversations we need to be having with other countries, but specifically focusing on some countries that have visa programs that make it particularly vulnerable for migrant women who are in domestic servitude. We know specifically that the kafala system, that employment-based system, puts um, trafficking victims particularly at risk, makes them very, it makes it very challenging for them to even seek assistance or leave their home to go somewhere else because doing so puts them in violation of their visa. And I think that um, if I'm confirmed, that is definitely something that I would want to focus on and, and try to get um, some relief from. Thank you. I appreciate you recognizing the kafala system as one of the big challenges that, that we have. Uh, how sharp are your elbows? <laughs> you know what? I'm currently working at the Department of Defense, and the joke around the office is that I know when to be lap dog and I know when to be junkyard dog, and I just love junkyard dog days. Um, and so um, if I'm confirmed, I would look forward to being um, junkyard dog whenever it's necessary. Well, I, ap I appreciate that. And here's the spirit in which I asked that question. There was a time, and I agree with you, the Trafficking in Persons Report is the gold standard globally to be able to uh, call out countries in, in which human trafficking, sex exploitation, labor exploitation, and other things um, can, can be called out and then worked on in order and have consequences. But that report is only as good as it is integrity is. And we had a period of time in which the report really had political influences in which um, there were decisions that were made not on the merits of what the facts were, but because we didn't want to have a country A, B, or C uh, get upset. Well, then the trafficking report means nothing, especially when everybody knows that country A is doing all of these things but get put on a tier that doesn't suggest that they're violating. And country B, who may be in some respects less important to our national interests or security, you know, ultimately gets the, the full wrath of the TIP report. 
we need to make sure that in the process of dealing with the regional bureaus and other entities, uh, as well as the embassies, who obviously are on the front line of dealing with these questions, we need to have a vigorous process that guarantees that the TIP report is preserved in its integrity. It is what it is. Here's the law. Here are the facts. This is, should be on the list for whatever tier they should be. I, I hope we can count on you to do that. Um, yes, sir. Um, if I am confirmed, I would look forward to ensuring that the TIP report maintains the the focus on integrity. Um, and I think that it's important not only from the U.S. because what is in the TIP report determines what the United States does and what we're going to support, but it is also critically important. I know this from my work at a nonprofit to the survivors and the civil society organizations that are working in the cracks and crevices of every country in the world. Our TIP report speaks volumes for them because those survivors and those activists, they can say, my country is not doing enough and the country does not listen. But if the TIP report that's issued by the United States of America says it, boy, does that speak volumes. And so we owe it not only for ourselves, but for all of those um, activists and survivors out there who are relying on us. So I, I appreciate your interest. If I'm confirmed, I can, can commit to focusing on that. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be a golden retriever. Being a junkyard dog sometimes is necessary. <laughs> so, uh, lastly, there's been a, since 2015, there's been a reported 45% drop in global prosecutions. Uh, we know that prosecutions for forced labor and other forms of labor trafficking remain particularly low. How can you as ambassador at large, JTIP, increase attention and resources to combating forced labor and other forms of labor trafficking, which is very important to us as well? We can, we'll compete against anybody in the world, but if you're, you're, if you're having your work done through labor trafficking, not only are, is it uncompetitive, but it is humanly wrong to the individuals being labor trafficked. Um, thank you so much uh, for that really, that very thoughtful question. And as a former prosecutor, I love your focus on accountability. Thank you so much. Um, and I think that that is really important, and particularly in the forced labor um, sphere. I think one thing, if I'm confirmed, I would look forward to participating in the Forced Labor Enforcement Task Force, in addition to the President's Interagency Task Force um, and the Senior Policy Operating Group. But I think that that Forced Labor Enforcement Task Force is a great opportunity for us to have greater interagency support because I do believe that particularly in the forced labor sphere that the State Department needs to work hand in hand with the Department of Labor um, and Department of Homeland Security. And I think that if I'm confirmed, I would look forward to the opportunity to really increasing that level of cooperation and presenting a, a united front. Very good. Um, Senator Van Holland, I see you stayed. I just want to make sure you don't have anything else. All right, I think we've covered a good part of the waterfront here. So uh, with the thanks of the committee for your appearance and your responses, uh, we will have records, uh, questions for the record. We urge you to respond to it expeditiously and fully uh, because we often get uh, members who feel their questions haven't been answered uh, except for one or two lines, and then they will not agree to move the nominee forward. So if you can address it expeditiously and fully uh, so that we can uh, promote your names for a business uh, meeting in which we can vote you out and send you to the floor. Uh, this record for the hearing will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, December 1st. 
Please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than Thursday. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.